Before you leave with your hard-earned money on those buckets, I want you all to know where it's going. Alias Jonas Nightingale, born Jack Newton. He was born in the Bronx. Then he ran away to begin a life of crime, including convictions for shoplifting, possession of marijuana, and grand theft auto. Now, if you think this money's gone to a man of God, you better think again. Everything you said is true. Absolutely true. Yes, I was born to lowly circumstances. Yes, I ran with a bad crowd that taught me to smoke weed and steal. I hung out in bars. And I hot-wired cars. I grew up mistreated. So I lied and I cheated. I learned hard crime and I served hard time. I have walked that crooked road and I have danced with the demon Satan. I've been face down in the gutter and looked up into the face of God. And I say to you tonight, if you want to give up the bottle, who are you going to talk to? Someone who's never touched a drop? And if you want to give up womanizing, who are you going to talk to? Some pale-skinned virgin priest? And if you want to give up sin, who can lead you off that crooked road? You need a real sinner, people. A sinner of such monumental proportions that all your sins wrapped up in one couldn't possibly equal the sins of this king of sin. Because you know if he can walk that straight and righteous path, if he can go from grit to grace, from sin to sanctity, from lowliness to holiness, that you, with all your everyday sins, can rise up like an angel and ride that golden elevator to God's own penthouse in the sky. Four minutes and 18 seconds after the hour of 11 in this the month of August in the year of our Lord 2008. Thank you for coming by, making a part of your listening day. We are live from the plushly appointed, yet not overly ostentatious studios of AM 970 The Talker. This, my friends, is the Rick Emerson Radio Program, an excursion into whimsy. Thank you for joining us on this Wednesday, and welcome to Day 12. Uh, it is 503-733-2970. 503-733-2970. The phone lines are open and ready to receive the word. Uh, 503-733-2970. Your comments, questions, clarifications, kvetches, ruminations on how to get a fluffier omelet, whatever it is you might have. 503-733-2970. Uh, Richie Bristol standing by, ready, willing, and able, and creepy to pass along your observations about the interesting, the groundbreaking, the tedious, the mundane. What was that horrible thing he said? I realize I'm not narrowing the field a whole lot. What was that horrible thing that Richie said right before we came on the air today? He said like nine creepy things in a row, didn't he? Which one? I don't even remember now. He said something about... He said something about if they have boobs and they're a mute. He said some awful well, no, thing. He's looking for a woman if she has boobs and doesn't talk. Yeah. There you go. He can be yours for just the cost of a phone call, ladies. He's Richie Bristol, and he's standing by uh, ready to pass along your observations about whatever you got today. It's 503-733-2970. 503 733 
877-262-970. I do like to think that in some sort of parallel universe or alternate reality, I am, in fact, a tent revival preacher somewhere in Rushwater, Kansas. I really feel like I missed my calling there in some you way. still dream. I, you know, it, 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 one can always reinvent oneself. I would like to do it. Can I just say, in all seriousness, we were just playing a little leap of faith there. Uh, Steve Martin, in one of his all-time great and underrated performances as uh, Jack Newton, alias Jonah Knight, Jonas Nightingale, in the Leap of Faith. It really is just, it's a flawed but great movie. I mean, it's not a perfect movie. It's got some things about it that I would change. Uh, now I sound like the bike guy yesterday. There are things we could perhaps do better. Uh, there are things about Leap of Faith that I would probably, uh, that I would probably tweak a little bit. It, 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 it is a movie that has a few warts on it. But goddamn, it's just—it really is just What's a wonderful. Name? Is it Lucas? Lucas Haas. Haas. I was gonna say, I was—I thought that was his name. I'm like, did he go to school with Lucas Haas? No, it's a great movie. I it's, love that guy. Uh, it's Steve Martin is in that. Lucas Haas is in that. Meatloaf is in it. Uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman. Uh, 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 what's his name? Uh, Qui Gon Jinn. Um, oh, why is it? Why is my Liam Neeson? Uh, Deborah Winger, looking fantastic, by the way. Anyway, it's just but here's I was talking to um I was talking to Todd the Corpse about this the other day, and uh, we were talking about Leap of Faith and how I mean if you like if you saw Bigger Than Jesus or you see any of my sort of more uh, the manic stage performances, I mean you can really tell that I draw from two things. I draw from Paul Stanley and I draw from Jonas Nightingale, and it, it, from those two things comes some weird sort of quasi holy hybrid. But I was telling Todd we were talking about. I made this observation to him that I've uh, probably told hundreds of people this, that I do feel like I would have made at least a passable televangelist. I don't mean that in a snarky way. I'm saying that I do believe that there's, I don't know, I, I think that there's some, some other version of me, some sort of parallel wormhole clone of me uh, that is sort of on television underneath a big canvas tent right now bringing people the word of the Almighty. So I told Todd that what I'd really like to do is just... Uh, like, you know, some guys run away with the circus. I really just want to go do it for a month sometime. If I could just go find, like, a tent revival somewhere that would just take me on as a temporary preacher for, like, three weeks, I think I could do that and then die a happy man. I just want to try it. I just want to know what it's like. I think it would be, uh, I think it'd be something at which I'd have a natural flair. I don't know. Anyway, um, and then that led me into this conversation. I'll have to bring these in. I got these great tapes. Uh, of Sam Kinison when he was a revival preacher, because Sam Kinison, before he became a stand-up comic, uh, you know, his, he came from a family of ministers. And there's this great moment in Sam Kinison's career uh, where he had left the ministry, he had gone to Los Angeles to become a stand-up comic, because that was his dream. He, get, he went to Texas, actually, then he, be, then he went to L.A., became a stand-up comic, and his, I think, dad and two of his brothers, you know, were still back in this sort of you know, revival business. And they were going, you know, they, they do, a lot of times uh, uh, the, the preachers or, or ministers or, the, you know, the revival guys, they'll go on sort of a tour where they go from church to church, fairground to fairground, tent to tent, you know, over like a three-state area. And they were short one guy. It was like one guy they couldn't find. And so they call Sam Kennison, who at that point was already a practicing stand-up comedian in Los Angeles. And his brother, I think Bill, goes, hey, it's Bill. We're going out on this tent revival tour. We're short one preacher. Can you come back and do it as like just one more time? It's like a one-shot thing. And Kinnison's like, yeah, it's no problem, I can do that. So he went back, and even after he'd become a stand-up comic, he went back and he did this one-shot tour with his other brothers and his dad, where he was there, like, preaching the word of God to the faithful. If you ever hear these tapes, it's just the most amazing thing. Because it's very clearly, I mean, he was in full-on Sam Kinnison mode. And I think it's not so much that his ministry sounded like his stand-up comedy, I think it's that he took all of the things he learned as a preacher and he took it into comedy. Um, so you, um, you know, you listen to him, 
uh, you know, uh, talking to these, you know, these sort of Pentecostal audiences, and it's just the most mind-bending experience. They hear Sam Kinison screaming the word of Jesus like a bunch of rubes in Iowa. Just, it's fantastic. I'll bring him in and play him sometime. They're, they're really great. In any event, if you'd like to uh, contact us today electronically, you can do that. It's Rick at RickEmerson.com. Rick at RickEmerson.com. Sarah at 970.am. Tim at 970.am. Or Richie with a T at 970.am. Uh, and it's uh, 503-733-2970. would like to join us telephonically today. 503-733-2970. Here's what lies in wait for you on this Wednesday. Uh, CNN Radio correspondent James Roop will join us from Los Angeles today. Now, I don't know why they got him talking about this. I mean, it's fine. I mean, we did any excuse to talk to Jim Roop, but there's that MySpace suicide that they with those evil parents, wherever that was, like Ohio yeah, or something. Yeah, no, they're in the book. So, but they got Roop has has been talking about this, uh, and he's going to have an update today. If you follow the story about these these hideous wastes of skin uh, who went online and sort of created this false persona and like kind of uh, it sort of seduced and abandoned. Uh, in a weird way, this like 13-year-old girl who hung herself, and it was a whole weird thing. So Rube's going to be talking about that. Uh, we'll talk to Cena Radio correspondent Steve Kastenbaum today as well. Oregonian TV critic Peter Carlin will join us. We'll talk about uh, Mad Men, Breaking Bad, and nine shows you're probably not watching. Uh, we will do today's top five. Speaking of things with which you're probably not familiar, I hold here in my hands one of the best top fives we've ever put together, and I say that before we've even played a note. Uh, it's the, I don't even know where I got the idea for this. This came to me... Out of the void, out of the darkness, like a vision, like musical manna from the great beyond. Uh, I got this uh, th th this idea last night. I put it together. We're going to count it down later on today. By the way, for the guy who emailed yesterday and asked if we were ever going to do the top five songs about prostitution, let me say this about that. I put together these top five prostitution songs because Richie was going to Nevada to spend time with the lady of the evening. Da 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 da. Bad conclusion. Awkward. Move on. And. So it's now kind of too late to do it. It's dated. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to keep it in the evergreen pile, and I'm going to wait until it's so dated that it becomes sort of a retro thing, like a look back through the past. Uh, and then we'll do it then. So probably in a couple weeks, I'll do this prostitution top five. Um, today, I hold in my hands the following top five list. The top five benefit songs you've probably forgotten all about. I mean, it's easy to talk about the We Are the World, Do They Know It's Christmas, or uh, you know, like, a, like some, some Farm Aid song. That uh, what is? Is New Kids on the Block on this list? This one's for the children. Yeah. Now is that an actual benefit song or yes. is it just a Christmas song? For whom was that a benefit? Um, the children. <laughs> I'm sorry. I guess, I guess maybe I should have been able to suss that out, sort of, Socratically. All right. Well, never mind. I stand corrected. I guess we need to put out an honorable mention. Yes. You mean it was just yes. sort of a benefit in that they were sending out good tidings? I, don't know. To... I remember the video though, and Jordan Knight sitting there at the piano, and there's like the sky background that's like passing away, and like you know, the children are all like singing around with them, little kid chorus. It was a beautiful. Video. I think what I mean by, don't get me wrong, I'm not doubting Jordan Knight's commitment to all the boys and girls of planet Earth. I'm just, uh, I think in terms of benefits, I was thinking it was for a specific cause of some kind. In other words, uh, what is it, uh, We Are the World was USA for Africa? That was the deal? Ba bags of beans or something? Whatever it was we were... I don't even know what We Are the World was supposed to do. I mean, I know... You know what it is? Seriously, I don't either. I mean, I know... I don't want to get all sidetracked here. I believe it's starving children in poor countries. Well, I see, I, see, I, I agree with you, but here's my thing, is that... Do you ever see that episode of uh, that episode of South Park, which has now become sort of an internet meme, where the underpants gnomes are coming in and they're stealing Cartman's underpants, I think, and and the deal that they go down to the center of the earth or whatever and they find the underpant gnome like lair or whatever, and 
the underpants gnomes, I know this sounds like absolute gibberish. You don't know what I'm talking about. But, but they discover these gnomes living inside the earth, and the deal is they're stealing Cartman's underwear. And Stan or somebody says, like, well, why are you stealing Cartman's underwear? And the gnome has this great, like, flow chart on a dry erase board. And it's like, number one, steal underwear. Number two, question mark. Number three, profit. And so I think that's kind of what, that's what We Are the World was, right? It was like step number one. Michael Jackson and a bunch of guys sing a song. It, it, number two, question mark. Number three, no more hunger. It, but I don't really know exactly what steps two, three, you know, I, it just, I have no idea. I mean, they, I think in the video, and this must have been stock footage because the song even hadn't even been released yet. I think in the video, with a bunch of shots of guys with like, I don't know, like a bucket of rice, like tossing it off the back of a truck to hungry children or something. No, I have no idea exactly how that was all supposed to work. It was all very vague. The proceeds were donated to United Cerebral Palsy, the new kid's favorite charitable cause. Are you kidding me, really? No. This one's for the children. Went double platinum in the U.S., and the proceeds were all donated to United Cerebral, uh, Cerebral Palsy. You own a copy of it? Yeah. All right. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have doubted you. I have a copy on 45, by the way. I didn't buy it. It came out I of Mike Everhart's record collection. On, uh, on yeah. Tape. All right. Well, we'll put it on the list. I mean, I'm kind of so I'm giving you a little preview here. This is like how you get that first six minutes of The Dark Knight before the movie comes out. We're going to give you the honorable mention. The honorable mention on today's top five. This one's for the children. By the new kids. So that's coming up today. Top five benefit songs you've probably forgotten all about. Uh, all right. Let's see. Uh, what else do we got coming up today? Uh, did I mention Peter Carlin? Yes, Mr. Skin from MrSkin.com will be here to talk about celebrity nudity. Uh, Geek Watch coming up today. Disturbing news about your drinking water. And uh, we'll get to a few notes uh, from yesterday. And uh, what are you doing over there? The drinking water is a thing. <laughs> you look like a thalidomide kid. Oh, you're That's swimming. Yeah. I thought you were doing like a flipper arm thing over there for a second. Uh, Tim Riley working on the following stories for your edification today. A 12-year-old boy chases down a shoplifter from his family store, only to have a guy pull a gun on him and happen in the coup. Eco-terrorist Trey Arrow will serve 78 months for his unsavory activities. Two men are under arrest for allegedly getting out of their truck and beating a bicyclist into Wallington. You have to pulls the plug on future Playboy parties. The Enquirer says they have more evidence of fresh lies from John Edwards. The assistant principal of a San Francisco high school is arrested for pimping. Snap! It's horrific. It's from the Communist Olympics. A weightlifter turns his elbow from back to front. <laughs> and I have I, I have the video all queued up, but I haven't watched it yet because I almost don't want you to see it. You can't the snap, can you? I don't know. I haven't oh, watched God. it. Tim, have you watched the video? I haven't yet. Richie, have you watched the video? I don't even think he says words anymore. I think it's like I, I think I press it and he's sort of like sloth back there, just all chained up and going, or whatever. Anyway, so if you go to Drudge or perhaps to Riley Live or someplace, you can see this. There's this still photograph of this guy, and we came in today, and Tim and I were talking about, like, did you see the video of that guy who snapped his arm? And Sarah, what would you think? You thought it was like in gymnastics or something? Sarah yeah, said, I was it... watching last night, and they were doing the rings, and then like the um, the thing that they spring off of. The pommel horse? Yes, that's what it's called. I was so, like, I know it's not the sawhorse. I was thinking about the sawhorse. Uh, the uh, the the pommel horse is pretty great. I uh, I find that I don't know why, but I find that sort of strangely compelling to watch. But we were talking about this injury this morning, and Sarah goes, "Is it the gymnast?" And I said, "No." And then I said the words that made it all so terribly clear in everybody's head. I said, "No, it's a weightlifter. Just lifted one pound too many." And then Tim, snap, snap. <laughs> the agony of the elbow. <laughs> You know, this entertainment is free. 
Friends and neighbors, you don't have to pay anything for this. You just turn on the radio and here it is. We're not on some satellite. The genius of Tim Riley just flows out of your speakers like some sort of some sort of golden comedic elixir that you can consume. And we give it away for free. That's what I'm saying. And we don't have to because we're pretty. All right. Joined today, as always, by the uh, lovely and talented Sarah Stellan. Hello. How are you doing today? Hi. I'm Let me just well. say this for a second. Snap. Let me just say that to you. Okay. Yeah. I can't stop touching my elbows. Yeah. Hi. How's life? How are things? Say something I don't know. Did you do anything exciting last night? Um, I did actually watch the... I love watching the gymnastics for the Olympics, and I did watch the gymnastics competition. And, um... Yeah, it was interesting to watch the United States. One of those girls was totally blown at the entire time. She was supposed to be like the front runner, and she kept messing up. And then what's his name though? Did the, what's his name? The Phelps guy? Is that the deal? He's like the mo- the winningest guy ever, or whatever. I know. I keep thinking of Fred Phelps, but this is a different. Point. Every to see me too. Every time they're like Phelps is big winner at Olympics. Oh, Michael Phelps. I just picture the big fat gray bastard like trying to you know on the on the parallel bars or something. Uh, watching yeah. swimming is so boring to me. <laughs> Seriously, I mean swimming. You know what it is? Swimming is just like watching wet auto racing. Mm-hmm. Bunch of guys going back and forth in a circle. And Spare me. I like gymnastics so much because it's like the interpretive stuff, and you can actually watch and you can see when they mess up if their feet are moving or whatnot. Here's a question: Is synchronized swimming an Olympic event? I don't know. Because if, if so, I call some kind of shenanigans. That should not be an Olympic Maybe it's event. like one of those Oscars they give out before the ceremony starts. <laughs> totally. It's the, uh, it's the best sound editing uh, Oscar. It's the gaffer Oscar. Uh, all right. Well, in any event. So if you, if you, if you, it is. Richie's saying synchronized swimming is an Olympic event. That's stupid. I don't care if anybody who's listening to me is a synchronized swimmer or not. That's just dumb. Are you kidding? That looks hard. Synchronized swimming is not a sport. All right, never mind. Now I'm not going to get all agitated about it. I got, I, I got to save my agitation for more important things later on. Um, but that Phelps guy, so I guess he's the winningest, and winningest always sounds like an incorrect word, although I guess it is correct. But he is not the winningest Olympian ever, or whatever. And I think Dennis Miller was making this point this morning that I think the actual headline in Drudge says like greatest Olympian of all time. Which is really sort of astounding, because you then think of, like, he's better than Zeus, or whatever. Because I know the Olympics go back to Greek, or Greece, or Rome, or someplace. Yes. I mean, some, some one, of those, one of those countries, one of those loincloth countries, like thousands Greece. of years ago. So really, to be, like, the greatest Olympian ever is, you know, that'll get you a little something. Um, all right. Uh, so, what else do we have to get through today? I got the, this observation about our drinking water. Uh, we got this geek question uh, to, uh, to get to. And I think... What time is it here? 20? We got like yep. 10 minutes? Uh-huh. All right. I might do something just a little bit crazy right here, uh, but we'll uh, but we'll see. Uh, first of all, I'm just going to read this. Did you have the drinking water story? Should I save it? Uh, you know no, what I'm talking about? I, I don't have I'll it. just read it here so everybody can be horrified. This is from uh, David. David sent this to us. Rick, here's a horrific story of two people skinny dipping in our drinking water. This is from uh, OregonLive.com. Mount Tabor skinny dippers get... Community service. A man and a woman who went skinny dipping in the Mount Tabor Reservoir in June were sentenced to perform 16, 16 whole hours of community service. You know, the 16 hours of community service ought to be spent coming by and cleaning out my stomach. Uh, Multnomah County Circuit Judge Terry Hannon found Ryan Langsdorf and Ashley Moyer guilty of second-degree criminal trespass, violating park curfew, and being gross. Police fished the two out of the reservoir around 3 a.m. June 28th. The section they chose for their dip wasn't in use at the time. Water officials said the pair could have easily drowned because water temperatures were extremely cold and the steep sides made it difficult to climb out of the reservoir. So we, so this guy makes a good observation, which is they, they're skinny dipping in what could conceivably be our drinking water, and they only get charged with second-degree criminal trespass. I mean, really, I don't want, ever, uh, want whatever they have in my drinking water. Anyway, and then he says, "Whatever may, he said, what makes me even more angry is the residents nearby the reservoir keep blocking plans to cover the reservoir because they look pretty. 
He says, every time a bum dies in them or a couple decides to strip down and hump it out in my glass of water, I am less impressed with having a pretty park. So there you go. What's this in your water? Oh, it's the taste of love. Oh, God. Well, seriously. I mean, look, I'm... Because fo- there's no filter between them and... That, there's no additional filtration. There's no official... No, no additional uh, chlorination. I don't know. I, it doesn't make any sense. I, there are leaves and all kinds of crap falling I in I have there. no idea. Well, we've talked about this before, that there was the bum that died in there, and it's just busy half-lifing away. Uh, you get any number of insects and sparrows and whatever that fall into there, and they drown, and then it's like, you know, hey, what's this? Mmm, hint of, you know, hint of blue jay. So... I don't really understand how they get away with not having additional filtration or chlorination of it. But, I mean, and I love aesthetics as much as the next guy, but seriously, some uh, some horny idiot couples deciding to go uh, have carnal relations in my drinking water. You know what, I'll take a little plastic tarp on that. Thanks so much. Uh, all right, what else do we have here? Well, I got this geek question that we will probably give here in just one second. Uh, hi, you're on the Rick Emerson radio program. Hello. Oh, hey. Uh, hello, Rick. Hello, Sarah. Hello, Tim. Hello, What do you got, sir? Uh, I have two real quick stories. I can tell you them both very quickly. Uh, number one, apparently a group of three guys who were on vacation in Georgia apparently found the deceased body of Bigfoot. Yeah, I have that. Wait, Georgia? So, well, because of the recent events, I have to... With Georgia here or Georgia, Russia? No, apparently it's Georgia, USA. Well, how so, would Bigfoot get all the way down to Georgia? What, is he hitchhiking? Yeah, they... That makes no sense at all. They wanted to know why he wasn't in Seattle as well. That might be the East Coast franchise. (laughs) He's like the drifters. Uh, Anyway, well, apparently it's it's true. It's like bread. How there's three different versions touring the country all at once. Uh, I'm sorry, sir. Go ahead. Apparently it's true because they had some so-called expert come check it out, and he can't explain it. The guy's seven foot tall, 500 pounds, and he's hairy. So uh, anyway, do with it what you will. Um, The second story is Kennewick's story. Yeah. Uh, Did you hear about the... uh, the nude guy following the uh, garbage truck. Yeah, yeah, we had that. Stuff. We had that last week. That followed the nude guy who was uh, pleasuring him, him, coked up and pleasuring himself in the lobby of the of the Super 8 Hotel, by the way, which is where I stayed two weekends ago. So yes. Oh my God. Oh. Uh, well, I'm sorry then. I wasted your time. Uh, I'm a delivery driver, but I don't get to stay in the van very much, and I can't pick up your show in my dumb warehouse. So. You, you know, it's weird. I was actually talking to somebody about this yesterday, uh, about how I got like this thousand uh, dollar, you know, amplifier or whatever sitting at home, and doesn't pick mm-hmm. up the all that well I got a $15 radio uh, from like sharper image or something picks up the station clear as a bell AM stations mm-hmm. can be a little tricky in that regard mm-hmm. yeah right. see I can go in there and listen to Lars but why the hell would I want to do that for that's what I'm saying that's the spirit my friend that's the kind of that's the kind of attitude that makes this a great country uh, keep kicking ass keep shopping at CD Game Exchange my friend have a wonderful day see thank you, you sir there you go uh, brief observation so we're doing the top five uh, benefit songs about which you probably forgotten today I tried to put together top five for no real reason. I tried to put together top five songs about sluts, and it was really, it was, I would say, surprisingly difficult to do. I mean, off the top of your head, can anybody here think of a song that is specifically written about sluts? I got nothing. Uh, bike, bikeage. What is that? Well, it's more about a junkie. But yeah. I mean, I'm trying to think about, you know, some girl who just, uh, you know, some girls just just the town doorknob. Uh, and I can't. Blink 182 songs about town doorknobs. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I guess Motley Crue. They've done a couple songs about groupies, which isn't probably the yeah, same and thing. There's Bremelo. There's is that Bremelo about slut? I haven't heard Bremelo in like five oh, yeah, years, probably. Yeah, overweight, slutty Bremerson. I don't think I've heard the song Bremelo since Matt Peterson played it for you one time because I don't think you've heard my first, it. Like six years ago. Seriously. So oh, we should play that sometime later on. Anyway, so I tried to do top five songs about sluts. Uh, that didn't really come together. Uh, two other brief things before we break. One is an observation. Uh, one is a question. So yesterday we had Nina Parker from TMZ on, and one of the stories she was talking about was how they were doing this uh, seance 
it was it's, it's just so stupid. They were trying to do a seance to contact Sharon Tate, but they weren't even doing it at the Tate House, because I guess the Tate House has been bulldozed. It's not even there. I know because I tried to go see it, and it's like you can't get anywhere near it anymore. Uh, the the closest you can get is there's like a bluff sort of across that canyon or whatever it is, and you can sort of look and you can see a gate that leads up a long and winding road to where the Tate House once was, but where, but it is no longer. So I mean, there's just, so that's just a road to nowhere. So what they do is. They end up having a seance to try to contact Sharon Tate, like, three doors down. And that's sort of a 665 neighbor of the beast kind of a thing. I mean, I don't even... Can you just... If, if, I mean, if you can... I know I'm asking questions about a goddamn seance, but I mean... If you can have a seance, like, three houses down from where Sharon Tate once lived, why do you even need to be three houses down? Why can't you just be at home, uh, like, in Florida or wherever? Why can't you just do... Can I do it from here? If I needed to contact, let's say... Character actor J.T. Walsh, who resided in Los Angeles, can I do it from my home in southeast Portland? I mean, there's never any sort of rules laid down about a seance. Anyway, so I, I don't think that Sharon Tate would trust strangers at this point. <laughs> anyway, to contact them, so I just think it might be a waste of time. Wow. That's so much better than the joke I was going to make. Well, I'm just speculating on why there was no reaction from her. <laughs> no, I'll stay back here, thanks. Um, the... I, well, I asked Nina Parker, so she's talking about it. I mean, God bless her. She was doing it in all seriousness. She's talking about this seance they had to contact Sharon Tate. And I said, so did anything happen? And she said, well, you know, some people reported having backaches. And it was on the tip of my t tongue to ask if people, if people reported having stabbing pains. Stabbing pain. It's a pun. All right, anyway. Uh, evil pun, I know, but I didn't say it, but I'm saying it today. We've got distance from it. You know, tragedy plus time equals comedy, Sarah. It's not too soon. Uh, all right. Uh, final uh, final thing, and we probably will have to take calls about this around uh, the corner. We'll probably have to break and come back. Uh, this is from our good friend Randy in Vegas. It says, Night Rider Geek question. Rick, I put the geeks on this, but I was uh, he says, I was watching an online streaming TV website the other day and stumbled onto a late 90s TV series called Team Knight Rider. It apparently ran for a year in syndication in 1997-1998, but I've never heard of it. Not once, ever. Glenn A. Larson, uh, Battlestar Galactica fame, was executive producer. It doesn't star anybody from the original series, but instead has a team of extreme younger adults who act and look like they're in a Mountain Dew commercial. They have not one vehicle, but five, including an airplane. Kit is not involved in any way. They fight villains and whatnot. There were 22 episodes filmed. I'm not going to say it's bad. That goes without saying. It makes the original Knight Rider look like the Royal Shakespearean Theater. The question I have for you is, WTF? Who knows anything about this? So there you go. So if you have knowledge about the short-lived 1997-98 uh, television series Team Knight Rider, uh, please now to email or call. I have no such knowledge. And there you go. Randy desires to, uh, to have his curiosity satisfied, and I'm not up to the task, my friends. All right. Well, there you go. All right. Any other observations or anything before we break? Anything? No. no. Anyone? I'm good. In the back. I'm fine. I can't wait to hear Nick is on the block. Richie, are you uh, are you good today? Everything fine? Yeah. All right. We're going to take a break. We'll come back around the corner. We'll talk to CNN Radio correspondent Steve Kastenbaum. Later on, Jim Roop. Later on, top five benefit songs about which you have probably forgotten. Uh, Peter Carlin from the Oregonian. Tim Riley at the Ministry of Truth and more. Stay there. It's the Rick Emerson. <laughs> Profit. Why, hello, it's the Rick Emerson Radio Program. 
Thank you for coming along, making a part of your listening day. It's 503-733-2970. 503-733-2970. God don't want no doubt money. Eno! Uh, it's Rick at RickEmerson.com. This, ladies and gentlemen, is CNN Radio Correspondent Steve Kastenbaum. Hey. Hey, Steve Kastenbaum. I'm sorry, I was distracted by this thing that Richie... Uh, Richard just put on the screen. Uh, so we were just talking about seances a second ago for some... Oh, because, long story short, we had somebody from TMZ on yesterday, and they were talking about how one of the big to-dos that happened in Los Angeles the last couple of days, that they were doing some seance to try to contact the spirit of Sharon Tate, blah, 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 blah. And the Tate house, of course, doesn't even exist. It got bulldozed and paved over, and it's like a tennis court or something now. And so they were doing it like three doors down. And I had this whole question of... I mean, if if you can do that, like if you can just be sort of in the general, like if you can just be in the same uh, zip code as somebody uh, who lived 40 years ago and the seance will still work, why do you even need to be that close? Like, why can't you just do it from the Great Barrier Reef? You know what I mean? And so Richie has now typed on the screen. This is what it says on the screen. A hot chick named Miranda wants to talk about seances. And the hot chick part is in all caps. And so this gives you a little bit of a window into how the mind of Richie Bristol operates. It's not so much that it's answering the question or that it's answering a specific topic. It is, in fact, that he finds her sexually desirable. How does he know she's hot? That's a good question. Richie, how do you know Miranda's hot? Uh, she sounds good. She sound good. Famous last word. Yes, sir. <laughs> Seriously. Not, and not even sounds. She sound good. Uh, Richie, you know, you've worked in radio long enough. I'm not saying Miranda's not hot, but I'm saying the voice is really no, uh, that's, that's really no signpost there. You don't really, it, it, it's all, you know, as, uh, what is it Dr. Johnny Fever said one time? There was this great episode of WKRP where Les Nesman had some woman who had called up on the, uh, you know, the studio, the request line or whatever, and was kind of giving him the, uh, giving him the sexy talk. And he had set up a date with her. And Johnny Fever had this great line where he says, he goes, hey, man, some of these chicks, they sound good on the phone, and then you get them in a good light, and it's dawn of the dead. So, there you go. Well, I guess we'll find out. Uh, we'll find out if, indeed, she does sound uh, alluring when we speak to her in just a, a few minutes. How are you, Steve Kastenbaum? Doing good. All right. So, as much as... What? I'm saying I'm watching things elsewhere and, and being thankful that I was born where I was born in my life is, uh, in comparison, a very easy one. Yeah, well, you know, I, I was uh, uh, I was actually thinking about the. Can you turn Steve up just a hair over there? Thank you. Um, I was actually thinking about that yesterday. I forget exactly where I was. I was driving along somewhere, and I was I don't know. I saw some headline. I don't think it was about the Russia Georgia thing, but I was I saw some headline about some just sort of. I think it might have been the Olympics actually, and somebody was making the observation that uh, the American athletes all seem to have this sort of zest and vitality and jubilation and happiness, and a lot of the athletes from other countries, specifically China, they a lot of times seem very sort of grim, and there's just not a lot of joy there. And I was thinking how it is just one big genetic lottery, man. I mean, you're just, you know, you're up in God's great gumball machine, uh, you know, when the, when the right number comes up, and you you know you land here as opposed to landing in the you know like Darfur or something. So. Just, uh, it'll 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 kind of freak you out a little bit. Um, all right, so here's a question. I only ask this because I mean you're talking about it, but I was talking to my uh, my landlord the other day, and I got like the the uh, whatever the, the gas furnace or the oil furnace, you know, for my house. Uh, so I don't have like the electric heat. I got the oil heat, and so I hadn't even really started to think about this. But is this the like? Am I going to get screwed? Like I've been screwed all summer because of the gas prices. Am I going to be screwed again when this winter comes and I got to start heating my house? Well, well, natural gas here in the U.S. comes mostly from the United States and Canada. So, if you're if you're heating your house with natural gas, you're you're in a little bit better shape than than you are if you use oil heat. And all the old houses here in the Northeast, 
so many of them are still using oil heat. The apartment buildings use uh, the old ones use oil uh, to heat their uh, apartments as well, and uh, that's a big problem. You know, it's really weird though, actually, because the uh, the Feds released a report, the Energy Information Administration, and they project how much they think a barrel of oil will cost uh, at different times, and they've revised their projections for 2009. So because the, the demand for gasoline is down and people are driving less, they think the price of a barrel of oil will average $124 in 2009. So then everything's good, right? No. They're saying that home heating fuel is actually going to go up uh, and stay high. So if you heat your house with home heating oil, from the months of October to March, you can expect to spend, on average, $1,182, 20% more than you did last year. Well, that's great. That's wonderful. Maybe I'll just go get that second job any any moment now. Jesus. I mean, because it already, I mean, it, it, I will tell you, I it, my wife will tell you this, it causes me almost physical pain uh, to spend large amounts of money. Uh, I mean, it really is like it causes me just a sort of just a, a visceral agony. And it's because I just spent most of my life just being, I mean, I, I guess I still am, but just being being a tightwad. Uh, I mean, I am unbelievably tight-fisted about money. Uh, Are you the kind of guy that has no uh, debt, revolving debt on credit cards or anything like that? Yeah, I got none. Zero. Uh, wait, is that true? Um I think, I mean, I don't want to swear to it because it's always, I mean, you know, because then it's like making me answer for my wife, too. But I will say, as far as my expenses, my costs, uh, I don't I don't have any of that. I mean, and the very, very few times in my life that I've had to, uh, you know, to put something on a credit card uh, or, in fact, this, uh, you know, this car I drive now um, uh, is uh, is the first new car I ever bought. And, man, I just, uh, and it's not, like, it's not like I'm somehow rolling in cash, but, man, I just cut my other expenses and just really busted my ass to get it paid off, like, with as soon as possible. Uh, because yeah, I, I, I hate owing people money. I hate it. I hear you, and, and, and I changed my way, so you should be be commended uh, for, for getting to that point because, you know, I lived with a ton of credit card debt for a big portion of my life, and just last year I am completely, I became completely debt-free. I paid off all those credit cards. Don't use them ever again. Man, what a weight off my shoulders. Oh, good for you. I mean, it re- and I, you know, I got to tell you, and I think Sarah still doesn't have a credit card. Is that right? 27? Yep. 27, no credit card. I did not have a credit card uh, until just a couple of years ago, uh, really, was my wife and I. When we got married, I finally I got a credit card, and I never had one uh, because you know my parents really drilled that into like if you don't got the you know, the cash in your pocket, don't buy whatever it is. Yeah. Um, and it's you know which is, and I'm not trying to be like I'm some you know like up from my bootstraps kind of you know hard scrabble American story. It's just that I need, I just never really had any money. And the and I and and I had some cautionary tales. I mean, everybody knows that friend. We have a friend of ours who I will not name who has. I mean, the last time we checked, it was something like $37,000 in credit card debt, and they're not wealthy people. Now, that being said, they're also not starving. It's not like they, they somehow needed to put all that stuff in their credit card to stay financially solvent or whatever, or there was some emergency. It's just that they see stuff, and they go, well, I'll buy it. I'll figure it out later, and it goes on the card. The next thing you know, the $37,000 in hock. And it's just, you know, and I, I sort of had some, uh, I had some negative examples early on that sort of taught me not to, not to do that. Anyway, but that being said... So I just, I am incredibly, like, you open my wallet, and it's just like a creaking sound. Just, and so then I got to shell out however much money uh, when they go to fill my oil uh, tank uh, uh, this coming winter. But, of course, you can't, you can't not do it, because otherwise then you're just sitting there in your house, you know, with a muffler on, seeing your breath appear in the living room and waiting for it to snow in your bedroom. So, 
How about the insulating the house? more efficiently. Well, there's that. We are actually taking some steps to do that uh, as well. Uh, just because it's... Because in my head, this is how my mind works. This is how neurotic I am about things. Because in my house... And don't get me wrong. You know, it's like uh, the, the the oil heat. It works well. It's fine. Keeps the house toasty. But that thing of where you turn it on and you hear the furnace kind of go... And it's that great, you know, it's that great sort of weird, like it fires up and you can hear that low sort of warm billowing of air. But in my head... Literally, and here's a weird thing, by the way. I don't know if you ever had an oil furnace. Mm -hmm. A weird thing about this, the oil furnace is just this big metal box in the basement. And you can't think about it too much, by the way, because it, because the, the furnace is just a big box of fire. And then there's a huge oil tank, uh, you know, not too far away from that. And you really can't think about how if that were to go wrong, it's just going to blow you into the stratosphere. So I try not to think about that, but every now and again... They'll ask you to, there's this like little metal panel you move, and they ask you to check the color of the flame or something to make sure that there's no impurities or whatever. So there's this big metal box in my basement that is the oil furnace, and like once a year, I'll turn it on, it gets roaring, I go down there, and I go, and I open this little metal panel, and inside, I mean, it's like peering into Dante's ninth circle. I mean, it's just a, you look inside, and it's, and it's just this fire that is roaring out of control, and then you shut it, and you kind of go, well, that's disturbing. I'm not going to think about that anymore. That it's like right underneath where I sleep. But every time I turn on the furnace, I just literally in my head just picture dollar bills just burning up in there. So anyway. And when, and when you look at that thing, it's like looking into like a, a 19th century steam engine locomotive, right? <laughs> exactly. Like seriously, like Casey Jones ought to be down there just like shoveling right into it. It's, so it's like, if you look at it, you think, I can't believe in te technology hasn't improved in the last 50 years, and I'm still looking at this giant flame in a furnace like this. This can't be efficient. I've got a giant box of fire about right. three feet away uh, from, uh, you know, everything I own. So, right. yeah, it's just uh, it's a weird thing in any event. So, well, okay, well, I've got that to look forward to this fall. I, I didn't want to have more disposable income anyway. 20% right. more out of your pocket today, well, Rick. Thanks. You're always, a, you're always a bright ray of, shun, of sunshine, Steve Kastenbaum. That's what I'm here for. All right, my friend. Enjoy the rest of your day. We'll talk to you soon. So long. There you go, Steve Kastenbaum, ladies and gentlemen. Wonderful. Excellent. Fantastic. All right. No, I hate, uh, and I don't mean to be like a Johnny Lecture guy about, like, let me tell you a thing or two about financial whatever. I know so many people who are in debt. I, Every, everyone I know is in debt. I just, it, and again, it's not because... I, I totally feel the same way you do. Like, if I don't have the money for it, I'm not going to buy it. But, but don't you almost hate saying that because it sounds because it sounds like a passive lecture mm. to other people. No, and I really don't do mean to be that way. Yeah. Yeah. I just know me. I don't like owing people anything. That's, Especially like some kind of credit card company is going to charge me even more for buying something in advance. That's just, the thing. It's just, it's just hanging over your head, you know? And I mean, like us of all people, uh, you know, it gave a really, really great... He was talking to a woman who had a lot of credit card debt. And he asked her what the last thing that she put on her credit card was. And it was, it was like a Starbucks thing. It was like a $4 Starbucks thing. And he said, well, do you pay off your credit card every month? She goes, well, no. I mean, I always carry a little bit of debt forward. And he said, well, what's your interest rate? And the interest rate was however much percent. And he, and he said, you know, do you realize that, that, like, you are effectively paying, you know, and it was like, you know, like $7.50 or whatever for that coffee. I mean, that's the thing. So I just, uh, it just uh, it's just a thing that I just be, I became a dime stretcher uh, early on in my life. Uh, we will get, uh, Jim Roop in like five seconds here. Uh, I gotta get, the, this. So this is, uh, Miranda, who Richie identifies in all caps as a hot chick. Hello there. Hi. Hi. How are you today, Miranda? I'm laughing really hard. First of all, <laughs> let me ask you this. Does it disturb you? And if so, how much on a scale of one to ten that Richie is assessing your sexual desirability by the sound of your voice? Uh, by the sound of my voice, I'm gonna say at this point in time, probably about an eight, considering I'm 16. 
Wow. Richie, you have never been more owned. Richie, you're creepy. Oh, wow. <laughs> Boy, I'll take awkward for a thousand, Alex. Okay. Well, you know, I'm going to move on from that segment of the conversation to this segment of the conversation. Tell me about seances. Okay. Um, as far as I've heard, because they were trying to contact a certain person, it shouldn't matter where you are in the world. Like, apparently, if you're just doing a general seance, then you can be in a certain area, like they've tried doing them in, like, haunted areas, mm -hmm. and you're just trying to connect to any spirit in that area. But if you have a certain person that you're trying to connect to, then it shouldn't matter as long as, like, you're spiritually inclined, that you can you can connect to whatever person you're trying to connect to anywhere in the world. All right, so, let me, so, this, so the example would be this. If you have somebody's telephone number, you can call them from anywhere. If you don't have the telephone number and you're just going to have to walk around shouting their name, you got to be in their neighborhood. Exactly. That's, That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. And, I mean, um, oh, God, I forgot what I was going to say. Um, All right. Well, it's, I appreciate you clarifying it for us in any event, and I apologize for any awkwardness that Richie Bristol may have imposed upon your existence. Don't worry about All right. it. I don't mind. Thank but, um, well, we'll fast. Yes. The, the fact that they were trying to do it, like, at near Sharon Tate's house, mm -hmm. In, in that particular situation, it's probably more for, like, a nostalgic reason than anything else. Well, probably to, or to get publicity, which was, uh, which was achieved by them. So, all right. Thank you, Miranda. No problem. All right. You call us anytime. There you go. That's uh, Miranda. Ha-ha. <laughs> all right. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome now to the Rick Emerson Show. That was so awkward. Uh, Jim Roop from Los Angeles. Hello, sir. And howdy. Hi. How, how are you doing today, sir? I'm fine. Wow. Poor Richie. Hold on a second. Hey, Richie, how you feeling back there? <laughs> yeah, all yeah, right. He uh, just typed on the screen. As soon as she said, that makes me feel like an eight because I'm 16, Richie just typed on the screen in all caps, oh, no, with like a thousand O's behind it. <laughs> wow. All right. Jim Roop, um, all right, well, this is sort of a, a ham-fisted uh, segue, but speaking of teenagers, so Sarah and I especially, and a lot of the listeners, we, uh, for a long time, I've been tracking the story of these Apparently horrible people uh, in Missouri. Uh, this is what is it? It is a, it's a, a a couple, a man and a woman, and uh, one of their kids or something, and they created a fake MySpace profile to sort of uh, seduce is the wrong word, but, but to 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 befriend to strike a, up a relationship online with, with a girl under false pretenses, and then to sort of uh, to sort of dump her to sort of to punish her. Yeah, this uh, the 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 woman Lori Drew. Uh, this she created this this Josh um, Evans uh, to, to basically taunt this 13 year old Megan Meyer who was an, is an ex friend or was an ex friend of Drew's daughter. So obviously there was something that that happened between Drew's daughter and this girl, and um, Mom wanted to punish her for it, so she created this fake identity, started this relationship online with Megan Meyer, and then intentionally started to sour the relationship, say some real cruel things, and at one point said the world would be better without you. And Megan Meyer, who was had been treated for depression in the first place, so she was very vulnerable, decided, well, maybe you're right, Josh. Maybe the world would be better without me, so she hanged herself. You know, and Sarah and I, uh, when this story first started happening, and it was weird because for a long time it wasn't really being discussed in the mainstream media. It was sort of being discussed, I hate the word blogosphere, but you know what I mean. This is all the Internet, and um, uh, and and the, the Internet community really took it personally, and they found out the names of the parents before the media had ever released it, published the names, published the, the address of the, where these people lived, got photos of them, like at the supermarket, put them online, 
And, I mean, the Internet community, I think the cops had to step in because uh, the Internet folks were really starting to kind of take this into their own hand. I think this would have... I think if if the police had not stepped in and begun a formal investigation and in, in, in all this, I, I think that somebody would have uh, somebody would have just taken out the trash by now. Well, it's 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 very odd because there's no precedent for this. I mean, there's no cyberbullying resulting in suicide type of previous statute. So they're gonna they have to come up with this these charges. This indictment came down with one count of conspiracy and then three counts of accessing a, a protected computer. Uh, not authorized, and then um, using that to continue a torturous thing, whatever. Um, so it's it's very strange. And according to the defense, it is kind of vague, but uh, and that's why they wanted the the case dismissed. They said, look, this is really vague. There's no real specific charge here, so let's drop this case. And the prosecution, who answered that submission by the defense yesterday, said, no, no, no this is a very sound case. And so we're going to use the statute that's normally applied to hackers, but we have to go after this. Otherwise, this kind of thing, we've got to set a precedent for it. Right. Otherwise, this kind of thing is going to continue, and cyberbullying will continue to get out of control. You know, and I know that kids do things to other kids, and, uh, you know, and the old cliche goes, children can be very cruel. But, I mean, it's, the, I have no idea how broken inside you must be as an adult, how empty and small and petty your life is. You gotta uh, hack together some fake teenage boy profile, which is it's which adds a whole other layer of creepy to it. Uh, that they are effectively that this woman is effectively playing on the romantic or social desires of a teenage girl through this sort of fake uh, teenage boy the mom creates. You know, I don't know how empty your life must be as a mom. Well, and you know, this, this is what you're time. doing. It took some because she had to develop this relationship and gain the trust of this Megan Meyer. Uh, through this whole thing, and then decided to torpedo her. Yeah. The weird thing to me, though, is the Missouri prosecutors didn't want to press charges against Drew. They said, no, we're not going to do this. So the federal uh, authorities had to step in. The U.S. attorney had to step in in Los Angeles because that's where uh, Fox Interactive Media is based. Right. That owns MySpace. That's why the, the lawsuit was filed here. But I'm just surprised Missouri didn't go after this woman. Especially because there was, at a certain point, it reached kind of a critical mass online, and there was a lot of coverage about it. Yeah. I mean, I think it was on the front page of the Oregonian here. I mean, you know, that's kind of how big it was. So I don't know if you've ever seen, for those who aren't really following the story or, or didn't really follow this, I don't know, Jim, if you've ever seen the uh, the Neil Butte film um, In the Company of Men. Um, but In the Company of Men... It's very, it's a, this is sort of like a real life version of that. In the company, manage the story. These two sort of, these two sort of embittered kind of middle aged white collar guys, both of whom have just been dumped by a woman, and so they they get together and in order to to sort of exact revenge on behalf of men or whatever, they decide to find uh, the most vulnerable girl they can possibly find, who is you know never gets asked out, never goes on dates, you know never gets paid attention to by men, and they decide to both woo her, woo her and seduce her and whatever, and then both dump her at the same time just to see if she'll off herself and it's just it's just a, it's just a terrifying movie i mean really it's just a, it's just a very it's well made but just an exceptionally disturbing film and when i read this story when this story started to come out of missouri it's the first thing i thought of and it's just you know use that phrase uh use that phrase hell is too good or whatever but i mean really there's just there's just a lot of people in this world that are walking around uh, just snapping like dry twigs inside well when i went to the arraignment uh several months ago now i was surprised at at how cavalier, to me anyway, maybe because I'm, you know, I, I, I mean, you're right. How empty could this woman's life be? I mean, this is such a, this is such a cruel thing to do. Maybe that tainted my view of this woman. But she seemed to me very callous, 
uh, no remorse whatsoever that what she did could have, not proven that it did really, could have resulted in this girl being so depressed she hung herself. Uh, this woman seemed to not get it. Well, that's, and see, and that's not going to, I have to tell you, that is not going to help her in the long run one way or the other because you, you got this, it's a flow chart. You got one possibility where the state convicts her and, uh, you know, on whatever these charges are and she, uh, she gets punished, she goes to the clink, she does whatever. Although apparently her husband and her kid are going to, are going to walk, I guess. But, um, you know, the, the, the other possibility is that they either, through some weird thing, they end up either not going to court or she gets acquitted or whatever. If that is the case, and given, as you said, her sort of callous and really just sort of the, the very uncaring attitude about this whole thing, I, I really do believe you don't want to screw with the online community about some things. And I do, I have a feeling uh, that if the legal system, I'm not advocating this, I'm just saying as an observer, I have a strong feeling if the legal system doesn't take care of this, uh, that's all going to work itself out in some alternate fashion. That's just my prediction. Well, we'll find out. The next hearing is the 4th of September. The trial is supposed to start in October. Mm. Unfortunately, during when the trial starts, I'll be at that OJ crap. But um, I'm definitely going to be at the September 4th hearing to hear what uh, the district court wants to do with all of this because they have to the, – the prosecution responded to the defense motion to dismiss yesterday – so now this hearing on September 4th will determine what's going to happen next. We'll have to see. Yeah, this world is one big cavalcade of freaks, my it's friend. It's crazy. All right, sir. Enjoy your day. We'll talk to you soon, brother. Thank you. There you go. CNN Radio correspondent James Roop. So it's going to be a big trial uh, fall for us. We got, uh, let's see, we got OJ coming up. Uh, we got this Lori Drew thing coming up. And then as uh, Joni DeRoshi noted on my MySpace blog the other day, uh, coming uh, September 8th and I think wrapping up in early October is... I don't know the actual legal term for it, but it's sort of the, the, the final, once and for all, uh, reassessment, recap uh, of the West Memphis 3 case. Uh, which oh, is really, really? And it's like their last best shot. Uh, because... And we'll How's talk, it looking for them? We'll talk... Well, I don't even want to, how's it looking for them from the, the standpoint of any objective, rational human being or from, you know, from, from you know, West Memphis? Um, you know, the West Memphis 3, you can find out more about it. You can go to WM3.org. You can read about it there. But it's, uh, there's been some documentaries made about it, these three sort of heavy metal kids that are, in my opinion, uh, it was sort of railroaded into jail and whatever. Anyway, but it's been a cause celebra for a lot of How people, a lot of musicians. like that if there's no evidence? Because, because they're hicks, Sarah. Uh, anyway, so there's... That's three... all I've read about that case. It's just nothing about it making No, sense. and it just... I can't talk about it too much because it just infuriates it is, it is me. It's frustrating with those stupid... But that you know you can't do anything about. But you know, but they finally, you know, they finally gotten a, a court to sort of pay attention, and they're going to assess all the DNA evidence or lack thereof uh, about Damian Eccles, uh, Jason Baldwin, and Jesse Miskelly uh, for the West Memphis Three, uh, September eighth, going through the rest of the month, and um, and it, and it, and it really looks like they got a good shot of just sort of scrapping the whole thing, um, you know. And I hope so because if they don't, like if it doesn't work, like for Damian Eccles anyway, if it doesn't work, he's dead. I mean that's it. So anyway, so I don't mean to be Johnny Buzzkill, but there's a whole that's coming a whole lot of things. So. Um, I, we're going to talk to somebody from CNN about it as the as the West Memphis three, uh, three thing gets closer. We'll talk to somebody from WM3.org. Uh, so I, I mean, I very rarely get on a soapbox about stuff, but um, you've you've been passionate about this since, I, since oh, the day just, I met you. Just it's just yeah, just it just it, it, it really one of those. You know, and I was telling Joni the other day, and then we'll, we'll break here in a second because I don't mean to be all like a, like heavy handed serious guy. Um, but I was telling Joni that you can't. There's somebody you can't get upset about every miscarriage of justice because it just happens all the time. And so if you were to just get yourself all ratcheted up about every time that the legal system screws some poor guy or guys or woman or whoever, 
you would just have no energy left. I mean, if you were just to get angry about everything the courts did in this country that was just ass-backward, you would have no time left to do anything else. Just sitting at home and hating would be a full-time job. Uh, so you, you just got to sort of pick and choose. And for me, it's the West Memphis Three uh, because, you know, I mean, you know, it's, it's the whole thing. You know, the small-town kids... Uh, overzealous prosecutor, you know, kids who wore a lot of black, didn't fit in, listened to Metallica, um, you know. So the, the, the great thing about the prosecutor and the news organization saying they were members of a satanic cult. The fact that at this trial, during which there was no evidence presented, one of the one the greatest moment for me during the trial, the thing, the, thing, the, 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 the moment that sums the whole thing up, is when the prosecutor is actually introducing as evidence the fact that uh, Damien Eccles reads Stephen King books. I was just, you know. Really? Oh, and he listened to The Cure. So there you go. <gasps> Damn him. Damn him. All right, lecture over. Go to WM3.org. Back after this, The Rick Emerson Show continues next with Tim Riley at the Ministry of Truth. Don't go anywhere. It's the Rick Emerson Radio Program. It's 503-733-2970. Coming up in just a moment, Tim Riley at the Ministry of Truth. Later on, Mr. Skin from MrSkin.com. Peter Carlin for the Oregonian Top 5 Benefit Songs, about which you have probably forgotten. Uh, A couple things here. We got this. Rick. Uh, This is about the uh, the Mount Tabor thing. Uh, This guy says, I live near Mount Tabor and I go up there all the time. There are ducks and other birds in the reservoir always. I understand why we wouldn't want people going to take a dip, but how are filthy animals and all their bodily functions being in the Mount Tabor reservoirs okay? Can someone please explain this to me? I don't get it either. No, it was it's because now here's a question, uh, Tim. Here's so a dumb. No filtration system, like dirt and like little, you know, dandelion puffs and everything. Exactly. Now, now, so now, to, this is how little I know about the water system. So the Mount Tabor reservoir. So that is just for. Is that just for Southeast Portland? I mean, that sounds like a stupid question. I guess it's good enough for them. Yeah. I mean, where does your water come from? From uh, from heaven? I don't know. From from a from a from a golden stream somewhere up in the mountains? I know you can use as much as you want, and you just pay, pay a flat fee every other month. Wow! Well, I just because the reason that the reservoirs aren't covered, I think, though, is because of all those the people who all they live up those, you know, like the Shins guy, uh, you know, who lives up there, uh, you know, and he says, I don't want to cover. I'm going to be able to look down at the sparkling water. And of course, by sparkling, you know, I think it means filled with bums. Uh, so no, I have. I think it really is just a complaint from the people who live up there about the aesthetics of the reservoirs, and that's and they exert, I think, sufficient clout uh, with the city so that the reservoirs don't ever get covered, uh, which just means that all kinds of nastiness and filth can fall in there all the time. Uh, finally, this we have an answer to our team Night Rider question, Rick. I have to admit that I uh, have to admit that I watched Team Knight Rider. The idea was that a young, edgy team was going to take over where Michael Knight left off. They had five cars they used: two motorcycles, one sports car, a truck, and an SUV. The vehicles each had their own personalities and were teamed with a hot guy or girl, a geek, an outlaw, etc. The hot girl, though, had a mysterious past that she thought might have been the she thought she might have been the daughter of Michael Knight. So she tried in one episode to hack into the Knight Foundation files, only to find they were classified. But they had to bring back the idea of a rogue car and a mad driver. So to avoid the issues, they had the cars have a kill switch, and they were not as indestructible. 
It was a very bad idea with bad acting and worse storylines. Ron in the Couve. There you go. See, that is that is exactly the magic of the Rick Emerson show. That's how it works. This show is sort of like, and here's your obscure allusion for the day, and then we'll begin the news. I don't know if you ever read the dreadful comic strip B.C. I know you probably did. Oh, yes. Uh, and Which we all did, I guess, just until we reached the age of reason or something. I mean, I don't it's even... It's usually near the Wizard of ID, isn't it? <laughs> I, I mean, I know that I talk about comic strips a lot, uh, and we've made observations about, you know, just like how many times can you see Ida No doing something in the family circus or whatever. But what I've never really heard anybody ask is, it's like that thing of the, you know, it's like I'm fascinated by the whole concept of ghostwriters. And so that one, The Wizard of Id. Uh, Do you remember that show, Ghostwriter? No. Wait, Ghostwriter with a yeah. D? No, you talk... with, a, with a T. No. Oh, Ghostwriter. Was it like a whispering ghost thing? Yeah, it was like a, yeah, a boy who had a computer who would write stories for him. Never mind. So my question, because I'm fascinated by the whole concept of ghostwriting, uh, like that Andrew Niederman guy who writes under the name of V.C. Andrews, uh, is like with The Wizard of Id, that Johnny Hart guy. They've been publishing that comic strip since like 1952. Uh, I mean, he's either got to be 170 years old, or he's you know he's picked up where Ponce de Leon left off, and he's just immortal, uh, or there's some other guy writing it, just signing the name Johnny Hart, or more tantalizingly, Johnny Hart never really existed to begin with. Uh, he was always just some sort of a pseudonym for just some uh, ghostly hack somewhere. So these are all the things I wonder about. Uh, but in BC, there was always that there was that thing that one of the cavemen would do from time to time, where he would write a letter on a he'd write a question on a stone tablet, and then he'd toss it into the water, and then he'd sit on the hill waiting for it, and it would come back like two days later with a glib answer from the mysterious person across the sea. That's what this show is. An hour ago, I throw out the question about Team Knight Rider, bam, it comes back to me from Ron. I miss Gasoline Alley and Mary Worth. Here's Apartment 3G. Tim Riley at the uh, time for the Rick Emerson Show's new news hour, only on AM 970, The Talker. And now, from the Ministry of Truth, this is Tim Riley. The news and news brought to you by Lapes Auto Collision Center. Find us collision repair. Go to lapes.com and find out what Lapes can do for you. Breaking news out of Little Rock, Arkansas. A gunman entered the Arkansas Democratic Party headquarters and shot the party chairman. Several times, he's in critical condition. The guy ran away to a nearby county and was apprehended and shot. We have no idea what condition he is in. Uh, see, there is a witness named Sarah Lee. And uh, she said uh, he came right next to her flower shop, which is right next door. So we'll hear what she has to say. Uh, Sarah Lee. The lady, which is his secretary, came into our shop running and saying, stating that someone had been shot. So we called 911, and... They turned around, and the police came. Sarah Lee said the shooter had only one demand. He demanded to talk to Bill Glotney. To who? Bill Glotney. Okay. The uh, chairman of the Democrats there. All right. So that's what's happening in Little Rock, Arkansas. Meanwhile, back here at home, a reward is being offered for a stolen pirate statue. Aggression police officers need your help in finding the stolen pirate statue. The owners of Big 80's Marina... In the 19600 block of Northeast Marine Drive, had rented the statue to celebrate the annual Big Eddie Days. Here's a brightly colored statue. He had been placed on the dock at the bottom of a ramp as a decoration for the pirate-themed festivities. Well, somebody stole it. He hasn't been seen since. Now, this pirate statue is six foot two, weighs 60 pounds. The owner of Big Eddie is offering a $300 reward for the safe return of the statue. Anyone who knows the whereabouts of the pirate statue has to call the Gresham Police. And there he is. That is it. Well, that's a very fierce and intimidating-looking pirate. He's six foot two. All right. 
So uh, somebody must have seen. They probably tried to bring it to a scrapyard and dismember it. Wait, is it made of metal? What is it made of? It doesn't of? say what he's made of. If it's only 60 pounds, it can't be made out of metal. No. Must, no. must be wood. That's some dude. That is a dude probably from a house of dudes who wants it in his living room so they can stare at it and giggle while they fire up a bong at night. You know that's exactly what that's about. You can just you can look at certain stolen items and know exactly what kind of person has taken them. And the pirate statue is stolen by a bunch of dudes. Two men are behind bars after attacking a cyclist, Walton police say. 38-year-old Uriel Ortega Beaverton was riding his bike on Southwest Barnesbury Road. Uh, last night, when the suspects came up behind him in a pickup truck and tried to intimidate him, a verbal exchange quickly escalated into fisticuffs, and Ortega suffered facial bruises. Mm. Under arrest is 26-year-old Michael Pelizer and 19-year-old Armando Manning. After several witnesses called 911 and followed the two men to Wilsonville, they faced charges of felony assault, reckless driving, and criminal mischief. Well, you know, we were just talking when we had the uh, when we had Greg Raisman, the uh, the bike guy on yesterday, who was fantastic, by the way. I mean, I was listening to that in the recap today. Uh, even at those moments where he was doing the slickly political thing of not really answering the question, which he only did to his to his credit, he only did like one and a half times. Once when I said, "What do you think of critical mass?" Those are just opinion questions. Yeah, and that was yeah, that was not a law question. Yeah, it's a good good. That's a good point. Uh, that whenever we asked him a specific question about the law, regulation, rule, whatever, he just no 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 mucking around. He uh, you know he came right out with the answer. Uh, but when I said, what do you think of critical mass? And he just, uh, to paraphrase uh, Joan Cusack, there was no answer in that answer. Um, and same thing with the zoo bombers. I told Tim this, we were talking about it before the show, that he really is, he ought to be running for something at some point. Because anytime you hear somebody, whenever anybody's giving an answer to a question, whenever you hear the phrase, well, there are things we could probably do differently, but that is the big, that's the tail right there, that's the red flag that you're not really going to get a response uh, to the question you asked. That's a lot of uh, that's a lot of skirting the issue and threading the needle is what that is. Um, oh, and here we have a Johnny Hart uh, answer. Hello, hi, you're on the Rick Emerson show. Hi, Rick. What's up? Uh, Johnny Hart died a couple of months ago. Uh, his nephew has been ghostwriting for the last couple of decades, and he took over. I want to say in in March. So this is wait. So and did Johnny Hart? Here we are again having a big discussion about the comic pit. We must do this twice a year. Yes. <laughs> so did Johnny Hart do both The Wizard of Id and BC? Yes. Okay, so which is yeah, weird because they have such a, such a different looks and such a different drawing style and a different style of comedy, I would say too, uh, analyzing yeah. a thing nobody cares about. Uh, so he died, and then what? Like his nephew, you said, took it over? Yeah, yeah. His nephew's actually been ghostwriting for, like I said, a couple of decades, uh, filling in, you know, when Johnny didn't right. feel like writing. That's a weird. That's a weird sort of. Uh, you know, you always hear about going into the family business, but when somebody talks about going into the family business, you always think it's like a feed company or the mafia. Nobody really thinks of the family business as having to write the BC strip every day. So, and that's a very specialized. Would you agree with me, Tim, that writing a comic strip every day, especially one of sort of the old school setup punchline comic strip like that, that's got to be a very specialized skill. Yeah, I couldn't do it. I mean, that's very much like writing. Henny Youngman material or something. It's a very stripped-down, basic sort of gag, punchline-based comedy. A very, I would say a, either a, a dying or almost dead art. Mm -hmm. So it is the Sanskrit of comedy. All right, thank you, my friend. Thank you. Thank you. There you go. All right, there's that guy. I wonder, Here's the, this is the final time we're ever going to talk about the comics, but someday we ought to go through the comic strip and see of the comic strips that are currently running, how many of them have, within our lifetime, been handed over to either a ghostwriter or a family member because the original guy's dead. I'm guessing probably 30% of the strips on the comic page uh, not now being drawn by the person who started them. They've just been, which is sort of intriguing because 
I mean, it makes you wonder, like, is there that much money at stake in, like, the Wizard of Id comic? I mean, I understand with, like, Peanuts or something, it keeps going because there's a whole marketing machine around that. You know, or Garfield, that Jim Davis guy, man, it's like, a, that is, I mean, the merchandising of Garfield is so, I mean, outstripped the actual uh, comic so long ago. I can understand why that thing just continues to go on like some sort of weird pencil and ink zombie long after its expiration date. But I really don't know, like, is it possible that there's some sort of vast financial underpinning to the Family Circus comic? These are all things that I think about that nobody else does. Here's Tim Riley. Somebody robbed a subway store in southeast at Knife Point. This is at the subway at Burnside near 30th Avenue. A clerk said a visibly drunk man came in, wandered around, and then displayed a knife. He reached into the register and got away with about 50 bucks. This is a white guy, about five foot nine, baggy blue jeans, black shirt, and sunglasses. Then Trey Arrow gets 78 months for firebombing a logging company. He'll spend uh, two years in jail because of credit for time that he served in Canada. So that is seven and a half years? No, six and a half years. Yeah, something like that. All right. He was convicted of helping to torch logging tracks in Estacado in 2001. You know, they ought to make him work at a car lot. That's what his sentence ought to be. Oh, he be ought good. to have to sell SUVs. Uh -huh. He ought to have to sell SUVs, and he ought to have to drive Furniture an SUV. Commission every day. Exactly. Make him work at a Hummer dealership. <laughs> That's the thing. They ought to give him that option, actually. They ought to say, look, uh, you can either have six and a half years in jail... Uh, or you can have three years working at a lot selling Escalades, well, he bastard. To, he has to pay $154,000 in restitution. How's he going to earn that? Well, he's never going to earn that. He's not worth more than minimum wage or anything. <laughs> I mean, even if, you, even, if you were to, even if you were to sell off his body parts, that's probably no more than 50, 60 bucks. He's going to wear the same clothes in jail every day till he's released. Yeah, all right. It's really very sad. You know, they used to do that thing in the 60s of telling you how many chemicals, uh, you know, how many dollars worth of chemicals your body was made of. And for the longest time, like in the 60s, I think it was like your body was made of a dollar and 97 cents worth of chemicals. I wonder what that is now. Somebody ought to do a little story on that, like how they do that cost of comedy thing every year with the cost of rubber chickens or whatever. Somebody ought to figure out exactly how many dollars worth of chemicals are in the human body, like as of now, 2008. I'm betting it's not even enough to fill your car. Here's Tim Riley. So it's very interesting that all this news coverage is going on inside of Georgia, which is out in the middle of nowhere, but we never hear about anything that's going on in Iraq, ever. So well, the Russians are being criticized, and uh, not that they're good people, but we're get getting like conflicting reports. It's impossible to know what to believe. A Russian tanks, they say, have advanced into yet another Georgian town. That's the word today from their president. Uh, Georgia has been cut into two pieces. The president is calling on the international community to take immediate action. Well, we need any impartial force that can come here. You uh, have been talking about some kind of monitoring. We welcome that. Any impartial force that will allow us to get out Russian occupiers. So then we have a reporter from the Christian Science Monitor, which is a very good paper when it comes to news. They're hardly ever wrong. Uh, this guy in uh, Tbilisi says... A Russian convoy heading toward the capital is very misleading. They were given permission to turn on the military highway. So that would mean that the convoy would have left Gori, driven several kilometers towards Tbilisi, and then turned up on the military highway. But the bottom line is, no, the Russian troops are not coming to Tbilisi. Okay. So I saw this great quote yesterday from, and it wasn't TASS, it's whatever the, I don't know, whatever the Russian news organization is now. Uh, and I wish I'd written it because I can't find it now. It was on Yahoo News or Google News or some such. Mm -hmm. uh, but it was last night, it was this great quote from the Russian government. 
And it was, it man, it was glorious because it read just like the old school propaganda. Uh, and it said, it was talking about how they were basically going to either slow down or halt their sort of incursion into Georgia or their advance. And it did say something to the effect of, after, you know, after a lightning fast and wholly crushing incursion into the, you know, the, the upstart country of Georgia, you know, the mighty Russian army will, you know, accept its current status of victory and move forward. And it was just this, it was like this big, like, 1960s Cold War, like, chest-thumping uh, statement. Kind of like how Baghdad Bob, uh, Baghdad Bob used to do, uh, like, in the early days of the, of, of, of the Iraq War. Um, you know, about how, like, the mighty Russian army was going to stop for now because they'd already proved the, you know, proved the point as only the Russians can. So now we have uh, this fellow from the Christian Science Monitor saying Georgians thought the U.S. would defend them from the Russians. People here thought that the United States was a big ally to Georgia. We have a street named after George W. Bush here. People love Bush. They love America. America's helped Georgia immensely. And yet when this, this war has come up, where is the United States? That's a good question. Well, they're busy elsewhere. The phone is ringing at 3 a.m. and no one's answering, Tim. That is too bad, isn't it? Yes. Uh, so let's talk about breakfast, shall we? Mom was right when she said breakfast is the most important meal of the day, especially for the children. Studies show kids who eat breakfast every day are less, less likely uh, to miss class and score higher on tests to get a better education. Cleveland Clinic dietitian Laura Jeffers says too many families rush out of the house in the morning without eating breakfast, but there are options. Power bars are fine. They're good meal replacements. Also, some of the newer cereal bars that have come out, they are higher in fiber, um, which tend to be lower in sugar. Also, some of the, the yogurts out there have turned into like a drinkable smoothie, and that would be good if we're on the road and needing to drink it instead of having our spoon and, and, and spilling it all over. All right, I got like uh, five different things to say about this. One, Kellogg's has this new uh, breakfast bar that is so unbelievably good it can't possibly be healthy. Uh, have you tried it? Do you know what I'm talking about? Oh. Like a Kellogg's meal bar? Sarah, do you know what I'm talking about? No, I've never heard of that. It's like a peanut buttery chocolate thing, and it has the big Kellogg's K in the front of it. I got one the other day, and here's the thing. I didn't even, I, I guess I should have read the, the label more carefully, you know, looked at the wrapper or whatever, and I, I kind of bought it, and, you know, you, you know, it's the thing. You throw the wrapper away and you eat it, and by the time you think, like, what's in this? You know, the wrapper's long gone. So maybe I should look it up online and see what the deal is. It was so unbelievably good that I just, I immediately assumed it was bad for me somehow. Uh, because it can be it can be kind of difficult to tell, uh, you know, with those with this sort of meal replacement bars, like what's good for you and what's not. Uh, and I tend to get those ones from Trader Joe's that are sugar free because they're you know, and 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 I of course automatically assume they're good for me because they don't taste all that great. You know, they're just sort of just like eating some sort of vague peanut buttery paste. But then that the message that sends is this is healthy. Did it taste like a Reese's peanut butter cup? It tasted like a whatchamacallit. No, 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 no. Let me let me clarify. The Kellogg's breakfast bar, it doesn't taste like a whatchamacallit. You know what it tastes like? It tastes like my favorite candy bar, which is the Snickers Crunch. That's what it tastes like. 190 calories per serving. Well, see, but I'm not even, then the calories aren't even really my big deal. Because 10 grams of protein. If it's a meal replacement bar, the calorie count is not even a big deal to me, right? Because you got to figure, you know, your breakfast is... You know what? If you're on a 2,000 calorie diet a day, you got to figure breakfast is 550, 600 calories. So that's not a big deal. I, the calories are less of an issue than than the protein to me. Just turning into a girl. Uh, but but I was eating it, and I it, it was you know, I was this is fat. That's the first thought. This is fantastic. Second thought, oh, this probably is just a candy bar. God damn, I treat myself badly. I'll be dead by 50. Uh, you know, and then I sort of forgot about it later. So that's great. Second observation: you were talking about yogurt. You know, here's a, the, the really horrific invention that has somehow just saturated supermarket shelves within the last decade, and that is a food called gogurt. I don't even really know what gogurt is. Isn't that the stuff in the in the 
foil packet and you can like squeeze it in your mouth? Is it like a weird suckable yogurt that like comes out of a tube or something? Tim, do you know what Gogurt is? Sounds like something the astronauts would need aboard the space shuttle. I was going to say either he either sounds like a space age food, like from the era of Tang, or doesn't Gogurt sound like some sort of primitive but threatening robot that might come and menace the Earth in like a 1960s film, mm-hmm. like in some bad sort of like a like some sort of a bad Roger Corman type? You know, I am Gogurt. Kneel before me, or I shall destroy your planet. I will kill your family on Christmas Eve. Wow, that was unexpectedly dark. Well, that really happened in one of those shows. I will kill your family on Christmas Eve? It happened to uh, Astro Boy's parents. See, can I, just, uh, can I admit something to you, Tim Riley? Yes. I've never really watched Astro Boy. It's on the, in the middle of the night during Adult Swim, but not all the time. Now, it's, it's the old school? It's not like an updated one? No, it's the original one, the black and white. And this is, is Astro Boy the main character? Yes. Who is his sidekick? Is it a dog? He has no sidekick. Really? He's a lone, he's a, he's a, he's a lone hero? Out there under the gun, on the run? Uh-huh. Astro Boy. Is it worth watching? Yes. All right, okay. Astro Boy. I'm going to make a note to myself. Astro Boy. Astro Boy. It's unbelievably violent and unnerving. <laughs> when, from from what when was it made? When is it from? Uh, it was a Japanese production dubbed in English. Is it from the 60s or 70s? Yes, 60s. See, that's it. You know, the thing is, here's the thing about the about about the Japanese and their animation. And I made this observation about Star War, uh, Star Blazers, I think, last week, which is that I think American television programmers for the longest time didn't really watch the stuff they were going to be putting on television for children. They would just, they would, you know, it's like they had to fill time or whatever. Uh, you know, like John, uh, John Paul from uh, a couple and I bonded about about Star Blazers because he watched it growing up in the Northwest too. And it's like with Star Blazers, the guys at KSTW, which was out of Channel 11 out of Seattle. I think they just had time to fill in the morning after romper room or whatever, and they would just sort of root around like in a big box of stuff, like, what, what are we going to put on? And they would see Astro Boy or Star Blazers, and it would, they would see that it was a cartoon, and they would go, well, it's a cartoon. File that under children. And they would never really watch it. And so not unlike Astro Boy, Star Blazers just unbelievably violent. See, the first ones uh, came out in 1963. So, I mean, and th- what was probably the case with Astro Boy, not unlike Star Blazers, Astro Boy probably began its life as a Japanese primetime show. Because the Japanese culture, they don't, uh, you know, we're getting this way here in America, but in Japan, they don't have the same distinctions about cartoons are for kids. I mean, there's primetime uh, series for adults that just happen to be animated. And that's probably what that was. And well, so, the, the big complaint was, because Americans know so little about anime, the complaint was there is very little in the way of movement of the characters. <laughs> that it's just them staring at the camera, and the, the, the boxy mouth is just kind of going, and it's like with with Speed Racer. Like when Speed Racer talks, his mouth doesn't even move. It's like there's just a white square that I guess is meant to approximate teeth that just blinks on and off. It just vanishes and comes the, back. The characters are drawn holding a pose with only their mouths or eyes moving. Well, that seems like a bit of a that seems like a bit of a disingenuous complaint coming from the American television consumer who sat there. As far as animations go, not particularly good. I mean, but really, I mean, look, don't get me wrong. I, I love I love the old school American cartoons and whatever. But if you really taken a good long look at most of that crap that Hanna Barbera put out for the longest time, yeah. Hanna Barbera is like Hanna Barbera is like the pasteurized of crap. It really. is. <laughs> It is like the pasteurized, processed, nondescript meat product that comes in a tin of cartoons. Do you ever see that thing? I know you would never eat this, but that thing they have at the store, and it's just like, and it just says like potted meat product, and that's all it is. It's just a blend of weird amorphous uh, meat leavings that they just creamed and put into a can, and the pack, meat. That's all it says in the front. That's what they had a barbarian. They are the meat of the cartoon world. 
Uh, and so you would watch. I mean, you, that people is like, definitely limited animation. Oh God! I mean, well, you know, and they had such. I'm not even going to say the animators were bad, but they just like they would just hire these guys who had sort of like a passable sort of drawing skill, and then they go, okay, uh, get to work on that McGillicuddy, you know, gorilla thing. It's like if you ever watch, um, I think it's Yogi Bear. You watch the Yogi Bear cartoons, and the guy. This is the story of I, I've always heard, and I tend to believe it. That either because of uh, budget or because of lack of ability or perhaps a confluence of both, they couldn't figure out how to draw. This sounds so dumb. They couldn't figure out how to make his neck look right, and so they just gave him a necktie, which is why so many of those Hanna Barbera car- uh, characters have neckties. Because the guys that were drawing it couldn't. I, I don't know. He's got a head and he's got a body. I can't quite figure out how to join and the you'll, two. You'll notice during the limited budget, you never see them below the shoulders. No, they never walk. No, nope. you never saw the the legs moving of the carrots standing in place. And people tend to think of um, we're really in our wheelhouse right now. This yeah, is a, we can just talk about this for hours. The uh, and will. So you think about Hanna Barbera and you really think of the top shelf stuff. You think of the Jetsons and you think of uh, Flintstones. And I would say those are probably the two most widely known and maybe best done. Of all the Hanna-Barbera things, but man, you did, Hanna-Barbera just put out the weirdest, I mean, shows. Then that, like, came the parade of mediocrity. I, I can't even, I cannot even begin to list to you the number of bad cartoons that came out of Hanna-Barbera. Uh, and the reason I asked if Astro Boy that you watch now, if, if, if it's an update of the original, because the, all the kids now on Adult Swim, they watch Sea uh, lab 2021. But here's the thing, what people probably don't realize is that Sea lab 2021 is in fact a parody of an old-school Hanna-Barbera cartoon called Sea Lab 2020, which was the underwater adventures of, like, what's-his-guts and his pals, like, flying around in, like, an underwater, like, submarine or something, solving crimes or doing something or other. And it was just the worst show. And I used to watch it on uh, USA Network's uh, Saturday Morning Cartoon Express, which was just like this Indian burial ground of bad animation. It was just like where cartoons would just go to... The the USA uh, Network Saturday Morning Cartoon Express was like a seven-hour block of bad, bad, it was like a grindhouse festival for commercials. It was like a dollar store for commercials, where you would just see like weird cartoons that like never really got out of the uh, the animatic stage. So it's all jerky and black and white, and see other things that like. You and, could... and remember, during those periods of times, besides product placement and, and crossovers, there was also um, cross pollination in the comic books advertising yeah. those things too. So Absolutely. that's the way they did it back then. Totally. So you just sit there and what will I watch this morning? Is it going to be uh, is it is it going to be like uh, Baby Huey or Little Lulu? You know, and there was just no there was no quality at all. I don't think quality existed in this country before about 1997. I think before that everything in America was bad. Here's Tim Riley. So anyway, uh, you're probably wondering what Prince Charles is concerned about today. More than ever. Well, you might share his uh, feelings for genetically modified crops. He says uh, he's totally against them and wants the public to know that. What we should be talking about is food security, not food production. That's what matters, and that's what people will not understand. Is that Prince Charles? Yeah. That doesn't sound anything like him. Well, if you were married to Camilla Parker Bowes, you'd probably age quickly. See, I was going to skip the uh, joke when he was talking about genetically modified crops, about, you know, wanting to make sure she eats right. Uh, All right, Charlie about Gogurt. Charlie, we'll oh, never Charlie, know. now we'll never know your thoughts. Hi, you're on the Rick Emerson Show. Hi, Rick. Um, I had a, uh Astro Boy observation. The guy that drew him, uh, they call him the godfather of manga, was Osama Tezuka. And him and Disney had just this hate thing going on. The very first Astro Boy, he had a uh, a killer robot that was basically a Mickey Mouse doll that went berserk. And I think 
uh, Disney sued him. Well, then later on, they went back and forth for decades, and uh, The Lion King was so popular. Tezuka originally put out uh, Simba, the, uh, Simba, the, Simba White the White Lion, and he ended up, you know, Simba, the Lion King, and uh, they ripped each other off for years. Excellent. It's kind of an odd one. I love things like that. I love little-known stories. I mean, I've said this a billion times. The history, you know, the hidden history behind things. I love little-known stories of rivalry like that. I mean, everybody knows sort of, you know, eh, there's Ted Turner and Rupert Murdoch or whatever. But, I mean, I love that. I love, you know, here's something people don't typically know about, that the ongoing, like, blood feud between Puma uh, Shoes and Adidas. Yeah, the, there were brothers. They're brothers. The yeah, yeah the two brothers who had a huge falling out. And one started Adidas and one started Puma. And they hate each other. They despise each other. Uh, yeah. Which is great. I mean, I you know, I live for I live for just you know, I live for hate. I really do. All right, thank you, sir. Thanks, hey Julia. So hi. All right then, thank you. Oh, by the way, fun fact about Adidas shoes. Uh, Adidas, the name of the shoe, Adidas, urban legends notwithstanding, is named for the founder of the company. His name is Adi Dossler. Uh, so Adidas is actually a contraction of his first name Adi and his last name so Dossler. All day I dream about soccer or whatever it is. No, or soccer. Look at you trying to be all pure. It was. I heard soccer. What did you think? Oh. You know what I'm talking about. Ew. Uh, so, uh, yeah, Adidas and Puma hate each other. Speaking of that, you should go to uh, the Vanity Fair website because Christopher Hitchens wrote an article about sibling rivalries because he's fighting with his own brother. Yeah. And he he uh, outlined quite a few of them, like Ann Landers and Dear Abby. Totally. All right. Uh, note to self, Christopher Hitchens. Yeah, because his brother... Because Christopher Hitchens wrote the God is not great, and then his eh, brother wrote some sort of mealy mouth, you know, like God rules, you know, sort of a, a thing, which I I read a little bit of it, and it just, I mean, it's not even really his viewpoint, it's just that it's so and badly just, written. Uh, Christopher Hitchens is being a Stalinist. Well, sir, and who, I mean, it's got to be tough that Christopher Hitchens is your brother, though, because he's like the smartest guy in the history of, of everything. So that's got to be a little, that's going to be a little overshadowing. Okay, here's a list. Uh, let's see here. Um, list of works produced by Hanna-Barbera. Okay, this, seriously, I can only read part of this. There are, this is just a, 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 just an estimate by looking at this list. I'm guessing, I'm guessing there's 300 shows here uh, that they list as having been produced by the, by the, the crap factory that is Hanna-Barbera. So I'm just going to list you some of them. This is just a brief overview. Now, is, is it this post-MGM or when they were first working in the MGM animation department before they dissolved that? Uh, this begins in the 1950s. Okay, so that was after they left MGM. So this is just when they were out on their own. Yeah. Uh, series, uh, just a hand again. This is just a very, very brief list. This is not even. This is just a representative sampling. The things created by Hanna Barbera: Loopy de Loop, Snagglepuss, Huckleberry Hound, Quick Draw McGraw, Rough and Ready, The Flintstones, Top Cat, Yogi Bear, uh, The Jetsons, uh, The McGilla Gorilla Show, Peter Potamus. I don't even remember that. Peter Potamus? Yeah, I remember that Peter Potamus. He must have been a hippopotamus. He was, and he was on the same time as uh, Underdog. Uh, I don't think Underdog. Who who created that? That was not. No, no, no. Underdog was created by, um, not Fleischer. Who was that company that did Underdog? I think Underdog was the same animation company that did the uh, Pink Panther cartoons, which would have been. Oh, no, I don't know. No, it's, I don't no, it's failing me. Um, Johnny Quest. Hey there, it's Yogi Bear. Atom Ant. Secret Squirrel, yeah. Uh, Frankenstein Jr., Space Ghost, Dino Boy. I like Space Ghost. What's that? I like Space Ghost. Space Ghost is fantastic. They came back with some creepy cable show a few years ago. Totally. I can't believe I'm watching this. It was a horrible show, but you couldn't turn it off. No, the Space Ghost Coast to Coast talk show was sort of compelling. I uh, did this weird interview. Today is just one of the... It's not that I'm some stoner. It's just I couldn't take my eyes off it. 
Wait, hold on. Let me clarify this, Tim. You're not a stoner? That's correct. And All I right. did like Space Ghost. I mean, there's some people who may have been confused about that fact. Uh-huh. They may have thought you might like to uh, like to toke up no. every now and again. No. No. Light yourself a J. No. Um, Adore Doobie. I, uh... I, uh, I, whenever this came out, like in the early mid-90s or something, I did an interview with Brack, who was the, the band leader on the Space Ghost Coast to Coast show. Because it's like an outer space talk show, and Brack was like the Paul Schaefer. And he was like this weird praying mantis-looking guy, and he was like, played the keyboards and would make pithy observations. And I interviewed him on a morning show once. God, radio's stupid. Um... Let's see, Space Ghost, um, Birdman in the Galaxy, The Herculoids, Fantastic Four, Banana Splits. That's what I'm talking about, right, man? The Banana Splits. That was some fine television. Wacky Races. I remember that. Scooby-Doo, Where Are You? Josie and the Pussycats, Harlem Glob- uh, Globetrotters, The Hair Bear Bunch, Pebbles and Bam Bam, Super Friends, Charlotte's Web, Speed Buggy, Adam's Family, Hong Kong Fooey. Boy, that's a thing you couldn't get away with now. The Hong Kong Fooey Show. Do you remember that? Voiced by? The character of Hong Kong Fooey, voiced by anybody? Anybody? Scatman Crothers. Um, Scatman Crothers, who was the uh, the groundskeeper guy in oh, The Shining, yeah. the black guy with a mouthful of gold teeth. Um, talk like this. Well, Mr. Magoo ha- had a, uh, a servant named Charlie who was Asian. And was he... Uh, talked the... in the stereotypical manner of that time. Yeah, well, that's that was... And, the, and I think Hong Kong Fui was an... He was supposed to be... It sounds absurd even to talk, but he was an Asian... I think he was supposed to be an Asian dog who was a martial arts expert. Voiced by Scatman Crothers. I mean, the whole thing just sounds absurd. You know, I'm going to quit now, but I'm not even halfway through the 70s. I mean, and that was not even a representative list of the 50s and 60s. That was like 10%. I mean, it's hundreds. It's hundreds and hundreds. And they, uh, and then, but they did sort of redeem themselves later on. You know, they did the Powerpuff Girls. So, uh, and Dexter's Lab. So you got that. All right. Are these calls about Hanna Barbera? Oh, here's a. Well, I don't know. They're. Uh, ah, you're on the Rick Emerson show. Hello. How's it going? What's up? Calling about the Disney anime rivalry. Yes, sir. Uh, another, you ever heard of Dragon Ball Z? Dragon Ball Z, yes. Okay, well, there was an axis of evil. It was a son named Bobbity, whose father was Bibbity, and they created a monster named Boo. And it was all like an axis of evil against Disney. Is that Boo. And so Dragon Ball Z, and that's like a, that's another one of those uh, sort of, it's like a Japanimation kind of a thing? Yeah. All right. I have to admit that all I know about Dragon Ball Z is that I got a couple friends who watch it, and there was a South Park where they did a whole uh, segment in Dragon Ball Z-style animation. So that's kind of the extent of my knowledge about it. Bibbity, Bobbity, and Boo. Yeah. That's the sort of writing that is both stupid and genius all at once. Retarded. All right. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Yep. All right. That's fantastic. And, yes, I admitted to watching the Powerpuff Girls. And a problem with that, you could take it up with uh, and take it up with somebody else. All right. Let's take a break here. Well, somebody sent me... Uh... A website where you can read old comics that you can't find anywhere. It's called joshreads.com. Is there really a demand for such a website? Apparently so. They have Gasoline Alley here. Yeah. And they also have uh, Snuffy Smith. Snuffy Smith. Beetle Bailey. What is it with with that wife of Snuffy Smith's? I don't know. Does she just not have any hair? She's got that weird weird do-rag thing on her head all the time. Funky Winker Bean. Funky Winker Bean. You know, Tim, it's not a complete list if they don't have Mallard Fillmore. Mark Trail. Back after this, it's the Rick Emerson Mark Radio. Rick <laughs> Emerson Radio Program.
Rick Emerson radio program. You know, you're right. That might be the 1910 Fruit Gum Company. It kind of sounds like it. I got this. I had to just keep that book here. I got this great encyclopedia of bubblegum music. It's called Bubblegum Music is the Naked Truth uh, by Kim Fowler, I think. Uh, and they have a whole thing about, you know, sort of one shot or maybe forget. Because it's easy to think, you know, you remember the Ohio Express or whatever. Uh, but there's all these sort of one shot or very limited edition bubblegum groups uh, like the Sugar Bears. Uh, and the Sugar Bears are weird because I think the only I think the Sugar Bears songs only ever came out on like those flexi discs that were on the back of cereal boxes. Oh yeah. yeah. So you would buy like Sugar Smacks or whatever, and then you on the back it would have this man. You know, there's just no. The, 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 even I don't really remember that because that was just at the tail end. I, I was born at the tail end of that whole thing. So that's not even a thing really from my childhood. It's more like my older sister's childhood. But you would get a, a box of cereal, and on the back there was a record that you could peel off. And you could put on the record player, and it would work. I mean, that's pretty cool. Sound sheets. Is that what they were called? Well, it'd be easy if you put them on top of a 45. They was just, well, and I remember you had to put a penny on them to weight them down, because otherwise the needle would actually grab it, and it would just spin. Uh, but you would, like, buy a box of cereal, and there was a record in it. I mean, that's a cool thing. There's really no equivalent to that anymore. When I'd buy a gem doll, I remember there would be, like, gems. You'd get a cassette tape with it. On yeah. one side, there'd be gem songs. The other side, there'd be... Um, um, like radio hits, like I remember Katrina and the Waves were on there, and like um, was it re-rig as sung by Jim? No, no, they had like the actual bands, which is so funny to think about now. So these bands totally sold out and had their songs as B-sides on gem tapes that were packaged for little girls. That's a little bit of uh, handy marketing, getting I your still, song. Into I still the, have the tapes. Getting your song right into the hands of uh, ten thousand little girls or whatever. So, um, but that does sound a lot like the nineteen ten Frugum Company. I have this Sugar Bear song at home called um, "Baby, You're My Morning Sun." Uh, which is really good. I mean, it's a top, it's a top flat piece of songwriting, uh, and it was sung by a bunch of animated bears from a cereal box. Uh, just uh, by the way, here before we sort of uh, before we sort of move on from this, uh, we got a couple of these. Uh, this one says, "Rick, not Astro Boy." And he's talking about the thing that I saw on Channel Eleven. He says on Channel Eleven it wasn't Astro Boy; it was Marine Boy, a similar cartoon with a foldable boomerang and a battle dolphin. Then Star Blazers. So there you go. There's that. And uh, final observation about old cartoons, this guy says, Rick, I was watching the old Tom and Jerry cartoons with my kid, and I saw something fantastic I had long forgotten. It was the episode where Tom dies and goes to heaven and must return to Earth to get Jerry's forgiveness signed on a piece of paper. Ahead of Tom in line at the pearly gates is a soggy bag that hops up to St. Peter, and out come three very wet and seemingly dead kittens. St. Peter then says, what some people won't do. That's really dark. Uh, you know, uh, cartoons used to be able to just... I mean, is it true? This is a thing I always heard, and I don't know if it was true or not. But you remember, there was that whole thing they were saying in the 90s about how they were going to start editing out all the violence of the Tom and Jerry cartoons. I don't know if that's a oh, thing. That's, that started in the 70s. Is with, that a thing? With uh, action for children's television. Is that a thing they actually did? Or did they just sort of threaten to do it? They were like, you know, they're taking the violence out of Roadrunner cartoons. But I never knew if that was a thing they did or if that was just... One of those things people said was happening as, like, you know, example of political correctness gone wrong. I think that that when cable came out, because the FCC couldn't enforce anything on cable that they could do on broadcast. Yeah. I mean, I can't. So it became kind of obsolete. I can't even imagine that the studios would allow that. That, like, Warner Brothers would allow them to go snipping up old Wiley Coyote cartoons. I can't even imagine that that would that'd be something they'd give permission for. Like, you never see the anvil actually land? Well, that was, but that was what I was heard. Like, well, this is how far political correctness has gone. And that they would always say, like, the example they would give is that Wiley Coyote would fall off a cliff, and he would fall, but then you wouldn't see the little at the bottom when he hits the bottom, which is the best part. So, all right. Uh, here's Tim Riley. Well, children love violence. They do, Tim. That's why it's put there. It's good for you. Okay, so this is the big story coming up this afternoon. Everybody has it. Everybody's talking about it. From Palo Alto, California, is the uh, dateline on this one. It's more than seven feet tall, 
weighs over 500 pounds and walked upright, three Bigfoot seekers, including a Redwood City man, claim that they have proof that they have found the body of the elusive creature in the wilds of Georgia. Not the one that's at war, the one in the United States. Uh, so on Friday at a news conference in Palo Alto, they say they will present DNA evidence to prove that the carcass of this thing is that of Bigfoot. Matt Witten and Rick Dyer, they're both Georgia residents, who lead Bigfoot tracking expeditions, say they found the body of what appears to be a Bigfoot in the woods of northern Georgia and will join uh, local Bigfoot researcher Tom Biscotti at a news conference. Among the creature's other physical characteristics of the body, according to the uh, website, were flat feet similar to human feet. The footprint is 16 and three-quarter inches long, and the length, uh, let's see, to, from the palm to the tip of the middle finger is 11 and a half inches. I think you'll find that this is the real deal, they say. A police officer in Clayton County and wire, a former uh, correctional officer, are not seeing exactly where the body was found and where it is now. Biscotti, a veteran a Bigfoot tracker who said uh, he went to Georgia to view the find over the weekend, said DNA tests are being conducted and a team of scientists will study the body. But they claim to name, uh, he will not name the scientists who are doing this. Now, from what news source is this coming? This is from the AP. Or from the Associated Press. Because mm-hmm. don't you, I mean, let's go around the room here. Bigfoot, believe, disbelieve, or neither? Sarah. Oh, I believe. Really? Yeah. Okay, I'm not, so, not? well, I'm just saying there's yes, no, where there's maybe. No, they're always, they're always finding, like, weird creatures. Well, that's true. Tim, uh, yes, no, or maybe? I say Maybe. See, I say maybe, too. Like, who knows? I'm not There's... a disbeliever. No, I'm, I, that, that well, is the thing. No I will weigh the evidence. I am, yeah. I, I don't disbelieve as such, but, I, you know, I, in other words, I am open to the possibility. If they roll it out on the table and go, look, we found this. I go, well, I mean, okay. what really is what are you gonna do? But, I mean, since nobody really knows who's to say that isn't what it is. That was going to be my next question, is when they say that they found Bigfoot, well, what does that even mean? And DNA, whose DNA are they comparing this with? I mean, that's, it, it does, it's sort of... Cousin of Bigfoot? I know this sounds Probably really... Bigfoot? This, this sounds, this maybe is a weird analogy, but this is like I was talking... Uh, Joni DeRoche and I have these conversations that, that always, like, five times out of ten, the conversation will turn to the subject of atheism or agnosticism or God or whatever. And we were talking about people who say that God doesn't exist or does exist or whatever. And I and I made this sort of, like, really navel-gazing observation that we're, that really depends upon your definition of God. Like, what is that? What, if you say there is no God, like, what does that even mean and whatever and blah, blah, blah. But that's the thing about Bigfoot. Well, what, I mean, are they just allowed to, to define Bigfoot in their own terms? Uh, maybe then to to fit whatever it is that they found. Uh, Bigfootologist might be. But, and that's we'll see. And that was good. I'm glad you said that. Then it leads to my second point about Bigfoot, which is a. First of all, this is a point in two subsets. At subset A, I feel a little uh, just prematurely angry about this because I always thought that Bigfoot was the province of uh, of Portland, because the National Bigfoot Society, by the way, is is headquartered here. So in fact, they are listeners. Hello. So well, he may have moved. I, you know, or maybe it's just like a, as you said, it's either a franchise or maybe uh, it's the East Coast Bigfoot visiting visiting loved ones. It's Jack Russell's Bigfoot. Um, but uh, and then that leads me to point B, which is, in a strange way, don't you automatically put less credence to a Bigfoot discovery if it is made by a Bigfoot researcher? Like in a way that makes oh, it less believable yes, to me. Yes. Like in other words, if it was just some guy. Like if uh, if some uh, you know some guy or just a, you know whatever he was like hey I, I was out in the back back of my yard and I found this weird thing and he calls he calls like come check this out like to me that's kind of believable some guys who are Bigfoot researchers announcing that they found Bigfoot 
that to me, you know, in a perverse way, makes it less believable for some reason. I can't can't quite put my finger on why that is. But that being said, I am open to the possibility. No, I can see that. You know, maybe they couldn't pay the rent at the Bigfoot office, so they had to come up with something. Because I mean, how would you? Th- th- here's the other question. This is why uh, the Bigfoot researchers finding the Bigfoot just seems a little suspicious to me. Because, A, they have a vested interest in it. B, I'm not saying they're making it up, but I'm saying they have a vested interest. And then also, like, what are the odds? Like, what are the odds that the handful of guys in the country who are looking for Bigfoot also happen to be the guys who find him? I mean, that just seems to stagger the amount. Like, the, uh, the, the odds of that are astronomical, especially given, like, what we're tracking Bigfoot. I suppose they have more time on their hands. That's all they do every day. Maybe. I, I don't know. Maybe that is true. I mean, can there be much money in hunting Bigfoot? Also this, when they say, well, we've been tracking Bigfoot for some time. Well, that seems impossible. That just seems like a lie. How does one track Bigfoot? I mean, if you've never found it, if there's no evidence, if you've never, you know, there's no fossils, there's no whatever, how would you then track something that, by definition, has never left a trace? I mean, maybe I do sound overly skeptical. I don't mean to. I'm just, I'm, I'm, I'm not skeptical about the idea. But I'm skeptical about maybe this specific find. It seems a little too convenient that the you know that it would just uh, you know that it would just have fallen into the laps of these guys. Anyway, that being said, who knows? Here's Tim Riley. So maybe Bigfoot was here all the time. Everybody's looking in the Northwest. He lived in Georgia. Maybe he got tired of not being found here, and so he decided to move to a higher population area. That could be. Well, a uh, assistant principal for San Francisco High School has been uh, arrested for pimping. The assistant principal and his accomplice, uh, Hasua Hamwa Chow, allegedly uh, were running uh, two houses of ill repute in San Jose. Both were charged with felony pimping and pandering. They've been investigating this for several months. San Francisco school officials uh, say this uh, fellow has been placed on leave. He began work at the school district in 1988. We're very sad to hear about this arrest, said the San Francisco Unified School District. Uh, Police have seized evidence of pimping, pandering, and prostitution at two locations. They also take the, took the principal and his gal pal into custody for further questioning. Well, Tim, pimping ain't easy, but uh, somebody got to do it. Never mind. Go ahead. A former astronaut will ride a bike across America. Why, that's more dangerous than going to the moon, wouldn't you agree? Dateline, Ada, Oklahoma. Oklahoma native and former NASA astronaut John Harrington is planning a coast-to-coast bicycle ride. He'll begin his ride Wednesday in the state of Washington and plans to arrive in Cape Canaveral about five months later. The purpose of the ride is to promote student interest in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. Here's a here's a little hint. If you're trying to promote student interest in something, do not pick the singularly most boring way to do it that you could possibly. Can you? I mean, American students, American adults, me. I can't follow anything for more than four minutes. The idea that we're going to take five months to watch a guy ride a bicycle. In real time. This is really not the way. Look, I know that we get accused sometimes of just droning on about things that have a very limited appeal. Watching a guy riding a bicycle for five months is not the way to spur anybody's interest in anything. Just a little word of the wise, a little marketing tip from me to you, friend. Nobody can pay attention to anything for five months. No, I can't pay. Really, I mean, I don't know whether I'm ADD or not, but I got to tell you, I get it takes so much. At this point, I think whether it is uh, chemical or just societal. I think it's just becoming worse and worse and worse with me, and the amount of energy it takes me to focus on something for more than 45 seconds. I mean, it's just uh, it's just exponential. Hi, you're on the Rick Emerson show. Hello. Hey, Rick. What's up? Ron Dante's uh, biggest hit was released on the back of a cereal box when I was like eight years old. What was it? The Archie Sugar Sugar. Yeah, okay, so that was, I didn't know that that actually came out in a cereal box record. That's impressive. Yeah, you cut it off the back, 
and put it on your uh, 45. Yeah. I, had, like, it was made out of, like, vinyl. I never had any any actual cereal box records of my own. I had one that my sister gave me, but you know what I had? I had um, I had records that you tore out of the middle of a Mad Magazine. Mad Magazine oh, yeah? used to put out records every now and again. So okay, I got a couple other points here. The yes, violence sir. in the cartoons. Yeah. Violence, racism, and drug references have been removed from like Warner Brothers cartoons for years. I believe Ted Turner owns all those cartoons now, and when they went on to cable, they sanitized them. It's entirely possible. And uh, let's see. Oh, uh, that David Douglas Street that they're renaming. David uh, du David Douglas Douglas David, Douglas, du Adams. Douglas Adams, yes. Yeah, um, but now, did, have you ever heard the name Terry Pratchett? Yeah. Okay, was he a co-writer? Uh, no, but uh, Terry Pratchett uh, wrote in a style very similar to Douglas Adams, most notably in a book called Good Omens, which he co-wrote with Neil Gaiman. I have a quote from him that I read the other day. I'm going to paraphrase here. If you if you uh, build a fire for a man, you keep him warm for the rest of the day. If you set a man on fire, you keep him warm for the rest of your life, uh, his life. Who can argue with that, my friend? <laughs> Thank you. All right, have a good one, Rick. Bye now. Yeah, Terry Pratchett writes a lot like Douglas Adams. And, uh, yeah, that, that there was a book called Good Omens that he co-wrote with Neil Gaiman like ten years ago. And it's very, uh, very Adams-esque. Okay, so he says that they are, in fact, sanitized. Do you remember that business when they were sanitizing Mickey Mouse cartoons or uh, uh, Mighty Mouse cartoons? No. There was this Mighty Mouse cartoon. Now we're into like the fifth hour of talking about cartoons uh, on KCMD Portland, uh, where the, the Mighty Mouse was like going off to fight uh, the crime or whatever it is, and he stopped and he plucked a bunch of flowers and inhaled, you know, sniffed the flowers, you know, smelled the flowers, then flew off, and they took it out because they said it was a thinly veiled uh, cocaine reference. So there was a little bit of insanity going on in the 90s in this country. Here's Tim Riley. Who would have thought the kids are sitting there thinking that there's cocaine? No one. And you know who thinks that? Cocaine users. I mean, that's really it. I mean, if you look at Mighty Mouse sm smelling some flowers and you think cocaine, you know what? You're a big freaking cokehead, and you just don't want to admit it. So, all right, here's uh, Tim Riley. Well, one would think uh, wandering around in a national park would be a safe place. Not so. There are animals there that will kill you. Thank goodness an eight-year-old boy is okay after being treated and released from a Tennessee hospital after being attacked by a black bear in the Great Smoky Mountains. Apparently, uh, Evan Pallow was playing in those mountains when the bear attacked. I was taking a picture of my dad, and I gave the camera to him, came up. There was a highway to come up to my dad, and I was just standing there with the bear was looking at me, and then went on two feet and jumped on me. He said he didn't do anything to attract the bear to ruin his uh, picture-taking. We had eaten lunch earlier in the day and had no food on us. Weren't looking for the bear or, or, or teasing or taunting in any way. Instantly out of no place. So John Paller said the bear had his son Evan in his jaws. Within two seconds, I ran from behind, grabbed the bear by the face, pushed him off, and Evan started running. Evan got disoriented, went in circles, and the bear tackled him a second time, and, and I'm like, not again. Where is this at? Uh, Tennessee. Okay, so not here. No. All right, okay. We don't have those kind of bears. No. Now, what kind of bears do we have here? That's a dumb question. Do we have, we have bears here, don't we? Oh, I'm sure we do. The, I mean, it's the, is it the, the, the killing kind? I mean, I'm assuming they're all the killing. Like, there isn't probably a bear alive that wouldn't kill you. No, you can't taunt a bear without expecting to be killed. Okay, here, this would be really satisfying. Wouldn't I you love... I thought he was kind of already proactively being like, we weren't dead all teasing the bear. Yeah, I didn't have any food. I didn't do anything. I wasn't menstruating. Wouldn't it be great to see somebody killed by a koala bear? I mean, really, that'd be a fantastic way, you know? I mean, you don't really hear about that a whole lot.
Maybe it's just me. No, I think they're more vicious than... That's you. the thing, right? Because, oh, they're so adorable. And then the next thing you know, like South Park style, they need to... Next thing you just cut to the koala bears just uh, sort of kicking one of their the limbs back and bears. forth. I mean, a koala bear, that seems... That right there, I mean, I'm saying as of now... Uh, as of today, Wednesday may change. Right now, that's the funniest way to die. Uh, just killed and killed and taken apart by koala bears. Panda bears, not so much. Koala bear, yes. Here's Tim Riley. Hey, CMD Portland. We have uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven part geek watch. Is that true? Yes, it is. It doesn't seem possible, Tim. Mm-hmm. Are you lying? Back, there's a backlog of geek news. We better get to it now. Here's your geek watch. Ugh, this high-speed modem is intolerably slow. In the Quasar Dilemma, remember, you used to... Just a television show. That's all, okay? <laughs> right, but... Because we were wondering if the quantum flux... Now, just listen on there. There is no quantum flux. There's no auxiliary. There's no goddamn shit. You got it? Better does. A very happy belated birthday to Steve Wozniak. Woo! He is the co-founder of Apple Computers. He turned 58 Friday. He also uh, took the time on uh, Friday to get married to Wozwipe 4.0 at Segway Fest 2008. Do you have any idea what you're reading? No. Okay. Do I ever? No. It says you will be happy slash uninterested slash dismayed to know he did not marry his former gal pal, Kathy Griffin. Yeah, he was dating Kathy Griffin for a long time. Mm Mm-hmm. The name of the new Miss Wozniak is not being released at this time. So, uh, so Steve Wozniak is sort of the Paul Allen of Apple Computer. He's, you know, other guy. Uh, because everybody sort of knows Bill Gates, and they kind of forget about Paul Allen's history in Microsoft. Well, now everybody sort of just remembers his Steve Jobs, and they kind of forget Steve Wozniak, who was the other guy in the Palo Alto garage. Uh, and I think... I may be wrong. I don't mean to diminish the importance of Steve Jobs, because, you know, I do love him in a strange way. Uh, but, but Wozniak was actually the guy who... I mean, put the computer together. I mean, and, and it was made out of, I mean, this sounds like a joke, but it was made out of wood. I mean, if you see pictures of that first Apple computer, it's like a motherboard and like some bad, I don't even remember how the keyboard looked, but the, the, the whole thing was in a case made out of, it was a computer made out of wood. I mean, it's just fantastic. Uh, and I, I think they got it on display somewhere. I don't think, I, I went to a computer museum once and I was looking for it. They didn't have it. Um, but, you know, Wozniak is, uh, you know, he's a huge part of a huge part of geek history there. Uh, and by all accounts, a pretty a pretty good guy as well. And I'm fairly sure uh, that in the 1980 Stephen J. Cannell series, Riptide, uh, that that robot named Boz was sort of a thinly veiled reference to uh, a man named Woz. Here's Tim Riley. So he's 58. Yes, he is. Part two. Uh, you probably know by now that many Gmail users found themselves unable to access their mailboxes, and Gmail returned a temporary error 502 message. Google later posted an apology in the official Gmail blog. They gave a clue as to what the outage was. Uh, we usually don't post about problems like this in our blog. We wanted to make an exception in this case, and so many people were impacted. About 20 million uh, users used the Gmail, and there were more than 100 million accounts in total. So, uh, the last outage in uh, Google Apps, which took place earlier this month, Locked out users for a total of 15 hours, and the Gmail outage was officially 1 hour 45 minutes. Although some users complained the service didn't return for over two hours. How did they live? I mean, well, and it, it seems like you only have so much room to complain about something that you're given for free. Yeah. You know? I mean, my free... Gmail is so amazing. My free Gmail with unlimited storage wasn't accessible for 120 minutes. So, I mean, you know, life goes on, friends. I don't understand how people cannot have Gmail accounts. I, you know, I got to say, I'm happy with Yahoo. I would I'm use Yahoo. I would use Gmail but if... But someone has your username, right? Yeah, I would use it if my name is available. It's not, and so, you know, I use Yahoo, which is fine. Uh, but, you know, but that being 
said, I mean, it's... Uh, and I'm happy I got Sarah Dillon and Sarah X Dillon. Totally. It's a weird time we're living in now where, like, I mean, you used to have to buy and use, like, some weird cumbersome email program or whatever. And it's like, it, it, it's strange how in just, like, I mean, not even 15 years, we've just gone from... Uh, we've gone from, like, writing a letter to having, to having this... I mean, I know I sound like Johnny Old Guy, but I mean, to having this free, accessible virtually anywhere... Uh, unlimited. I mean, you can send. Uh, I'm going to send a 14 gig application now, uh, and you can just do it. You just attach some huge thing. It's massive and just send it to some guy. Uh, I mean, the idea that all that stuff is free is just a little staggering. It's like that whole Moore's law thing about how you know, 10 years from now, a computer is going to be twice as small, twice as powerful, and half as expensive. Uh, and I mean, it just, it'll be in, like in Richie's sunglasses. Yeah, I mean, it just it seriously just it staggers your imagination. Uh, so I don't they put them in contacts. Like colored contacts. Well, Richie's got this thing, yeah. So we're, so Richie's got these sunglasses he wears, and they're Bluetooth sunglasses. And I was like, well, that's stupid. What does that mean? It's like a Bluetooth toaster. All and, the chicks dig it. And then he showed me they're like these bitchin' sort of like Lars Ulrich sunglasses. And then they go down to these little tiny earpieces that go right into his ears. And as he put it, he can listen to the station anywhere in the world because it, it goes right into his, uh, you know, his iPhone via the Bluetooth. He can listen to the station anywhere here. He can talk to us. He can record himself. He can do all that stuff via his sunglasses, which is like. Which is cool. It's like you're getting really within, like, shouting distance, I would say, of Maxwell smart James Bond territory, or perhaps even outstripping it uh, in some way. As long as it's the original Maxwell smart. Yes. Did you ever see the update to Get Smart? No, thank you. All right. I'm gone. <laughs> see, if you'd gone to see it, I would have felt, I would have been a little disappointed. No. I'm glad you didn't do that. No. I'm, no. I'm a purist. No call for that. All shoe phones should be the dial version. Exactly. Didn't Agent 99 have a phone under her thumbnail? Oh, that just reminds me of Twin Peaks and, like, the letters under the fingernail. Maybe I'm wrong about this. Am I misremembering? I don't remember. I think there was an episode under of Get her Smart. fingernail? Yeah, it's like she had a fake thumbnail, and she would open it up like a jewelry box, and there was a phone under there. Maybe I'm, mis maybe I'm just making that up in my head. Mm, I know, but I think it was a one-shot. I think she only ever used it in the one episode. So Maxwell Smart had the shoe phone. There was the, uh, whatever, the Dome of Silence, and there was, the, you know, all that stuff. And then I do believe that Barbara Feldman, Agent 99... At one point, uh, there was some thing where she had to communicate with somebody or other, and she revealed that she had a tiny phone hidden under her thumbnail, which now that I say it does sound kind of gross, but I do sort of remember that being the case. Another fine piece of programming on KSTW Channel 11 in my childhood. Here's my problems with the uh, the new Get Smart film, which I haven't seen, so I'm judging a book by its cover. I judged it by the poster. That was the dumbest-looking poster. It was a bad-looking poster, and also here's well, the... all the summer movie comedies suck anyway. They were... Uh, they were I mean... There was a dark night. Was there, there was a dark night and there was Wally. Was there anything else this summer that was really like a standout Sex film? In the city. Okay, what well, is that? True. The, true that there were three event films. Uh, other than, I mean, which I guess is not. If that's like an average of one a month, I mean, I guess you can not ask for a whole lot more than that. Mamma Mia was better than I thought. Right now, now Pierce Brosnan and his singing. That was horrible. I hear it's ill-advised. Why wouldn't yeah. they just dub it? It must have been in his contract that they couldn't dub it. It because, was surprising. I mean, because it's like Meryl Streep, she can sing. Yeah. Uh, and then it's a whole movie full of good singers, and they got Pierce Brosnan going, uh, you know, for 90 minutes. Well, you think, is this really happening? <laughs> I mean, really, is this really happening? You wouldn't imagine that Pierce Brosnan would have a sufficient clout, though, uh, to, to insist that my voice must be kept in the movie. Uh, because they would just, back in the day, if you couldn't sing, they would just, man, they'd dub over that crap with somebody. Not like Natalie Wood was singing in West Side Story. That's somebody else. So, or play some of the Chinese girl, like in the Olympics. Yes, exactly like that. I didn't know what you were referencing there for a minute. So my thing with, with Get Smart, this is pointless now because we're talking about a movie that's already come and gone. I can't keep track of all these things going on. Now, you know what? That's it, what it, makes it's this... It's like thing. having too many windows open. I have to shut down a couple of them. You mean this radio program? Yes. Yeah, no, it's not too many windows, Tim. It's like a many-faceted jewel. Okay. 
and so it's like a Kreskin's crystal. My problem with Get Smart was just reading the description, and of course, Get Smart—it's ironic, right? Because Maxwell Smart is a—he's a goof. He's—he's he's a bumbler. Mm. Not he's sort of like an American Inspector Clouseau. Would you agree with that? Yes. And so, just because of or in spite of his incredible stupidity, he somehow solves all these cases. Well, apparently, Steve Carell's character in the new Get Smart movie is not dumb. Like he actually has his act together, which sort of—that just ruins the whole thing. The point of Get Smart is that he's not smart. He's a dumb guy who is partnered with his sort of long-suffering, uh, intelligent, sort of desirable, you know, sidekick or whatever. Uh, and I guess they got rid of two things. I guess they got rid of his character being dumb, and I guess they got rid of the sort of like, I don't know, the sort of weird sexual tension or whatever between the two of them. And that's just, you know, that's the whole, that, those are the engines that made that show work. So, I mean, at least Mel Brooks made a little money on it, you know. So, here's Tim Riley. Electronics retailer Best Buy is picking up on the trend of installing vending machine kiosks in airport. Along, uh, they're trying to appeal to stress-out travelers who left their cell phone charger at home and need a last-minute gift to appease cranky relatives. Uh, called Best Buy Express, the kiosk will show up at a total of 12 airports in a pilot program. They're already installed. Let's see if we have them here. Nope, not yet. Uh, the rest of them are expected to be in place September 1st. Best Buy hasn't said which terminals they're uh, located in, so you're going to have to go look for them. So it's a vending machine that sells gadgets. Yes. <sighs> Mm-hmm. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, because they've already got, uh, not here, but in California, you go to rental car places in California, they got a vending machine there that sells uh, iPods, uh, I don't think iPhones, but iPods, iPod accessories, batteries, chargers, all that kind of stuff. So like they're, and they've already, and, and we uh, learned at the PDX, they're going to start doing that thing where you can rent a little tiny miniature DVD player and a DVD, and then when you get to your destination in like, you know, Detroit or wherever... You, all you have to do is there's like a drop box, like for the library. You just go boom, you drop it into the big metal metal chute, and then that's considered a return. So, a gadget vending machine. Oh, I can't even imagine the, the, the I can't even I can't even imagine uh, just, the, the impulse uh, purchases uh, that I and other people will be making at that sort of a thing. Scientists say they're a step closer to developing material that could render people and objects invisible. Researchers have demonstrated for the first time that they're able to cloak. Three-dimensional objects using artificially engineered materials that redirect light around the objects. Now, previously, they were only able to cope a very thin two-dimensional objects to make people kind of invisible. The findings by scientists at the University of California, Berkeley, led by Zing Zong, are to be released later this week in the journals of Nature and Science. The new work moves scientists to a step closer to hiding people and objects behind visible light which have broad implications, including military ones. People can see objects because they scatter the light that strikes them, reflecting back uh, some of those particles into the eye. Cloaking uses materials known as metamaterials to deflect, uh, deflect radar and light and other waves around the object. Do you understand all this? Well, as I understand it, uh, I'm, doing that, I'm doing that Star Trek thing. Of uh, of taking the big uh, of taking the big scientific theory and then dumbing it down to an overly simplistic analogy. What it's like, Tim, is how the river in a the water in a stream will divide itself and go around a rock in the middle of the stream. So light will divide and go around an object, not reflecting upon it, thus rendering it invisible. Oh, it's that exactly makes, like that. that. You could be invisible. Where would you go? Go. You could go anywhere. You could appear anywhere invisibly. Anywhere invisibly? Oh, yeah. geez, that's a big question. I'm saying for me, the Vatican. Inside, like the Holy See, the Holy, right there in the, in the, in the right there in the Pope's office. Hmm. Maybe Disney World because the admission fee went up. I can't really compete with that. 
Am I going? Maybe not. Do you have an answer? Not really. Okay. I was thinking maybe the White House. Oh, there you go. That's a good one. So you can never go wrong. You can go to the White House anyway. Area 51. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'd like to go there. Here's Tim Riley. Uh, Keeping the Star Trek pot simmering on the media's stove while Batman and the Jedi rule in the theaters. How old is this? J.J. Abrams and Paramount revealed new posters for their Starfleet reboot at last week's Las Vegas Trek convention. Featuring the new faces of McCoy, Sulu, Chekhov, Scotty are uh, several images. This follows on the heels of Kirk and Spock posters revealed at Comic-Con last month. Abrams showed his uh, first cut of Star Trek to please Paramount executives recently, according to StarTrekMovie.com. The first full trailer is only awaiting finishing visual effects before finding its way to theaters. And finally, Electronic Arts Friday confirmed the upcoming release of Godfather 2, which promises open-world action and bird's-eye strategy. Similar to the first game, Godfather 2 features an original story using characters from the movie and events unfolding in 1960s Florida, Cuba, and New York. But rather than resting on GTA clone laurels, Electronic Arts is introducing an additional strategy element to the game called The Dawn's View. It allows you to oversee the entire world from afar as they grow the family business. Running an organized crime family in a world defined by uh, family loyalty is uh, something we felt we could introduce with a new strategic element to the genre. Here's the thing about that Godfather game. That Godfather game is one of the first games I played that really made me feel old, uh, because there was just just an unbelievable amount of stuff you had to remember to play the game. I mean, I, I'm, not, I'm not requesting that everything just be a joystick and one big red button, but I mean, there's, I think there's like five different styles of gameplay in that, in that 360 Godfather game. There's driving around, talking to guys. I think there's hand-to-hand combat. Um, and there's something, something else like, like, I don't know, like muscling a guy because he's late with the, the protection numbers money or whatever. Uh, and each of them, driving, talking, walking, punching, stabbing, whatever, they each require a completely different setup of the buttons. In other words, if you're, the, I mean, the, Jesus, and the Xbox 360 control has got, I think I added it up on the air one day, but it's got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. I think it's got like 12 buttons, two thumbsticks, and like a direction. I mean, it's, it's insane. Uh, and so you've got like, whatever, like 12 buttons and like three little like thumbstick directional things. And each of them, like, and all of those things are configured differently depending on whether you're driving or talking or punching a guy. So basically you have to remember it's like 36 different button combinations. It's just like it makes my head hurt even to think about it. So, I mean, I... Uh, I got about two hours into that Godfather game, and I was like, you know what? This is just a. Uh, I need to be on. I need to be on. I don't know some kind of performance-enhancing mental drug even to play this thing. So I will be skipping Godfather too, just for the record. There's your uh, Septuple Geek Watch uh, for Wednesday on the Rick Emerson Show. By Grabstar's hammer, by the sons of Warband, I shall avenge you. Next. Loneliness and cheeseburgers are a dangerous mix. Let me just do a couple things here before we resume the regular news. First of all, we got an interesting interview opportunity passed our way today. Uh, this is from, I don't know who this is, so this is from some, some one of those the, those interview companies, you know, where they just get they get paid a commission or whatever, where they just try to book like 10,000 guys at once. Because I'll get these interview people and they call me and I'll answer my phone foolishly and I'll say, hi, this is Rick, and they'll go, 
Hi, Rick. My name is, uh, you know, Cindy LeBeau, and I'm calling from uh, New York. New York, with, and they always say calling from New York because that, of course, lends an that lends an aura of, uh, you know, of extra desirability. Calling from Cleveland. The, that, that, that's it. Or, the, or you know, or they're calling from from New York about a guy who's like in Pig's Knuckle, uh, Georgia, uh, and. Uh, so I got this one. It says uh, interview opportunity Thursday, September fourth. Because the deal is, if you pass on one interview, they'll immediately have like five or six others that they want to pitch you instead, and they all suck. They're always terrible. Interview opportunity Thursday, September fourth. Uh, let's see here. Greg Tubach. Who knows who that is? No one. Would you like to know what he does? Of course you would. He is the editor of. Here's a thing you haven't thought about in about fifteen years, and when I tell you the company for which he works, first of all you're going to think. I haven't thought about that forever. And then you're going to think, this will be your second thought, I guarantee it. I can see into your mind like a mentalist. You will first think, I haven't thought about that in a long time. Then you will think, those are still around? And then your third thought will probably be, why do you even need those? Greg Tubach works for... A TV rabbit ear company. No. Notice he worked for a pager. I drove by a business the other day here in Portland that was like so-and-so pager and beeper company. And I, and I opened my mouth uh, to, to ask Laura. I said, why would you even need? And then I saw like the out-of-business for rent. Oh, that's um, So um, Greg Tubach is the editor at at Clips Notes. Now, when is the last time anybody here thought about Cliff's Notes? I saw them at Powell's the other day, and there were people looking through them. Really? Yeah, I see people using Cliff's Notes when I'm, like, out at a bookstore or something. I mean, do you see them buying Cliff's Notes, or do you see them just, like, paging through, maybe? Because they don't want to... Reading them, like, a... Maybe out of amazement that they're there. I mean, I... uh, First of all, I haven't thought about Cliff's Notes forever. And I would say, by the way, as a point of pride, I never used any Cliff's Notes. But I I haven't thought about Cliff's Notes forever. And then my my second thought was, I can't believe... I mean, who even knew they were still around? And thirdly, and this is tied into thought number two, why would you even need them? Because you got Wikipedia. I mean, Wikipedia is one big... Wikipedia is like a cliff note for the world. But not necessarily accurate in some cases. And maybe. I mean, I suppose it's inaccurate maybe in things that are sort of hotly debated or divisive or sort of unresolved. Like if you go to... I'll guarantee you this. You go to Wikipedia right now. Do you ever do this? You go to Wikipedia and there's an entry and it says like... And you see that big thing. at The, the neutrality of this article has been disputed. Mm. Which always means... But I kind of ignore it anyway. Because I, it looks like somebody's holding a grudge against somebody. That's exactly what it was. And when they say the neutrality of this article has always been disputed, it's one blue-haired housefrau fighting against another blue-haired housefrau about some tiny little piece of information that matters not a whit. Either that or, or, here's the other time, here's the other time in Wikipedia when the neutrality of an article has been disputed. When it's a bunch of conspiracy nut jobs sitting there gibbering each other into some sort of a paranoid frenzy about something. Uh, like the Montauk Project. I was there. After that thing washed up in, in, in the East Coast, I typed in Montauk just to look for the, and I, and I it went to the Montauk Project by mistake, and it's just a whole bunch of tinfoil hat bastards just screaming back and forth at each other. You know what I mean? The Montauk Project is so interesting, though. It's a portal to another dimension. There's a cover-up, and you're just like, and that's when you just close it. You're like, you're like, this is a time when Wikipedia can't help me because it's like the inmates are running this whole joint. Uh, Anyway, so uh, Cliff Notes. Face it. He, he said, face it. We all use them growing up. Now they're available online and as podcasts. I wonder if they charge you to bot to use Cliff Notes online. Oh. Because, I mean, I that's... I imagine so. I mean, they would, ha- they would have to, but, I mean, they, they, that's a weird industry to be in. I was thinking about this the other day, about Cliff Notes and how it's sort of like the Encyclopedia Britannica, 
Wouldn't you like to see a documentary about the rise and fall of the Encyclopedia Britannica company? Or encyclopedias in general? I mean, does encyclopedia... Yeah, my parents still have their Encyclopedia Britannica. From way back when? Yeah. I mean, they're cool, though, right? Yeah. I mean, they're really great, but I mean... Here's a question. Do they still make brand new, hardbound, physical encyclopedia sets? I mean, for America. Not not for some country where there's no internet access or whatever. Uh, but, I mean, here in America or in industrialized nations, do they still sell A through Z with that extra volume for S or whatever that's like two uh, of encyclopedia sets? I, I, I would say that they're obsolete now due to the internet. Absolutely. They're absolutely obsolete, but you know a lot of those obsolete companies they just keep on rolling because it's like, as uh, you know, as uh, as Eric Draven says in The Crow, they're all dead. They just don't know it. And so, yeah, I mean, they you, change your name to something else, and they have the same amount of products online as the salesman who calls on you, and just trying to drag it out. So I wonder about those encyclopedia companies, and especially because that is sort of like. I would say that the Internet is to encyclopedias as Kurt Cobain is to Winger. Uh, because it's like immediately, in like the stroke of a pen, or the blink of a thing, or the something of a something, they were just obsolete, gone. And I mean, I'm old enough to remember that guy coming door to door. Be like, hey, would you like to invest in your children's education? And then your parents buy the the encyclopedias. And you know why parents do that. Parents buy the encyclopedias because then the parents can lie to themselves and say that they've done, well, we've done our job. There's no Johnny has to get into college now. We've done our part. Sort of like buying a family Bible and then assuming Dad will get into heaven, you know? Well, then they used to have the knockoff ones that they gave in the supermarket for a $5 purchase, like Peggy's Encyclopedia, <laughs> with a $20 purchase at Stop and Shop. Encyclopedia Lusitania. This month, the letter M. <laughs> Collect them all. It's the two musketeers uh-huh. of encyclopedias. Uh, but I remember I had a friend of mine, and see, and I don't know how much they were. Weren't they absurdly expensive? Yes. Like hundreds of dollars? How much did your parents pay for their encyclopedias? Do you know? Oh, there were hundreds of dollars, I remember. And they, came with, and they also got, like, separate books that came with them as well. Like uh, atlases and yeah, stuff? Yeah, about, like, animals. And, and there's the book of things. knowledge. The book of knowledge. Now, here's... Let me pull up a chair, Tim. Certainly. Just have a seat. Can I just tell Learn you... Learn the talk show. Can I, just, uh, can I just make an observation here before we continue our discussion about the book of knowledge? Sure. First of all, can I just tell you... This is just like the best radio program that's ever existed. And I'm not just saying that because we're here and we work for it well, and whatever. people don't appreciate it. I, well, you know, I think many people appreciate it. Those who don't will be punished in the future. Mm-hmm. Well, people consider radio to be a jukebox. Uh, a little else. Well, because a lot of radio... There, there, there are fine jukeboxes out there, mind you. A lot of radio is a jukebox, Tim. A poorly stocked jukebox. I suppose so. Uh, with a lot of records that skip over and over and over again. So I will say that uh, those folks who appreciate this program are themselves appreciated by us. And in the future, this program will have a 100 share. We'll have to imprison some dissidents first, but that's okay. You know, can't uh, can't make an omelet without breaking eggs. But this is a this is a great show. It really is. We were talking about Hanna Barbera cartoons, and then yesterday uh, we had some broken penis story, and now we're talking about the Book of Knowledge and Encyclopedia Britannica. Where else can you find that? I ask you. Maybe public radio. Yeah, but it's dull there. I mean, it's uh, and you're not going to get the well, penis you have thing. To, you from have to them. speak in hush voice. No, and they're only they're only going to give you the encyclopedia thing. They're not going to tell you. We have a Britney watch coming up later. Think they're going to give you that? No, yeah, the penis watch. Um, but um, let me make a I'm going to make a little note. I have a thing to say about NPR later. There's not enough hours in the day. This show should just be broadcast 24 hours a day. Um, that was at one time. That really is one of those things my psychiatrist will call grandiose. So the book of knowledge. I, I was going to say that I had all of this. Uh, you know, I to some degree still have, but I when I grew up, I had all these class issues growing up because you know we weren't that poor, but we didn't have a lot of money, and I had friends who who had more money than we did, and I was always very keenly aware of that. And it's weird that when you're a kid, there's certain things that you notice 
that sort of indicates thing, there are certain things you notice about your family versus other families that weirdly sort of does remind you that maybe you don't have as much disposable income as other families. And I had a friend of mine uh, who his parents every so often would buy, they would update it. They'd buy the brand new set of encyclopedias because I guess you couldn't just buy like a new letter S, right? Like you had to buy the whole thing over again. Yes. So like you know every couple of years the whole thing was outdated and they wouldn't they wouldn't just you know couldn't sell you they couldn't sell you new pages to put in there wasn't a three ring binder and so I was always I was always a little not jealous but sort of weirdly bitter about the fact that they inside the encyclopedia and we didn't I was like I bastards um, but he had the book of knowledge I don't know what that is what is the book of knowledge it's kind of like an encyclopedia but it's all scrunched together like one big volume there, there aren't as many it's more of an upscale it's harder to read. But is it, so does it take out some words from the encyclopedia? Is it a, is it a one book set or a couple books? It's, it's a few books. It's okay. not as big as an encyclopedia. Interesting. See, that sounds like something I'd like to read. I like the idea of there being three books that have all the knowledge. What's this? It's the book of knowledge, and it's like one book, and it just tells you everything. Yeah. So that would be obsolete, though. I uh, there's it's like that guy that uh, Bill Bryson. He wrote that book called A Brief History of Nearly Everything, in which he tries in like one 500-page book to explain all there is to know about every single one of the sciences, which is just a fascinating book. Um, so encyclopedias. I would love to see a documentary though about the rise, glory era of, fall of. And then probably implosion of the encyclopedia industry, especially the encyclopedia salesman. I mean, that's a whole branch of sales that just vanished. Like the, like you, the Fuller Brushman or the guy who sells. Probably Bible salesmen still have a better career than the guy who sells encyclopedias. Maybe. But I remember that, um, you know, early on there was that question, like with the record industries, of how are the encyclopedia folks going to deal with the internet? And I think the answer is badly because they just immediately got. I mean, they're gone like wheat before the sickle. And then Microsoft tried to do that Encarta thing. I don't think that really worked out very well. But um, where was I going with this? Cliff's Notes. So anyway, do we want, do we want to talk we to the guy from Cliff's, Cliff's Notes? Notes? That was like 35 minutes ago. But that was the thing. Do you want to interview the guy from Cliff's Notes? And so my question is, if it's online, do you have to pay for them? Because it seems like nobody's going to do that. You know, nobody's going to pay for Cliff's Notes online. They might give you a little bit, but not all like they do with the New York Times. Need to know more? Like on Salon, you read the first thing and it's like, if, if you want to read the rest of the Salon article, you can either click here and watch 75 commercials or you can give us $12. I do neither, by the way. I close it. Uh, so, in any event, I don't think we're going to talk to the Cliff's Notes guy. But um, it, does seem to, it does seem to me that that is a... you can answer your own question pretty easily if you just look at it online and see if you have to pay or not. Yeah, because I can't imagine, because the thing is, Cliff's Notes are not bought by parents, right? Parents don't want to do it. Read the book. Parents aren't going to buy you Cliff's Notes. And so kids are then going to have to get the Cliff's Notes online. And a kid's not going to have a credit card, so a kid would have no... Ma I've now just destroyed their entire business model without even looking at it. So parents aren't going to buy it, and kids can't buy it. So it seems like they're hosed unless they work some sort of advertising into it, which, again, parents groups probably scream about. I'm sorry, Cliff's Notes guy. I've just analyzed your business. You're dead. Uh, here's Tim Riley. Well, it's going to be hot. 88 degrees today. 96 tomorrow and 100 degrees on Friday. What does it say? Does it say Saturday? Saturday, 98, Sunday, 85, back down to the 80s on Monday, and not back down to the 70s until next Tuesday. That's Damn, a, it's going to be... That's what Rhonda said, anyway. Uh, that's My it. Rhonda not. Shelby? Yeah, she's always... Rawr. Our outfits are black for the soapbox derby, too. That is going to be so hot. Yeah, you're not going to have a good time. 98 degrees. Yeah. Oh, the last 100-degree uh, day here in Portland was back on June 28th, says Rhonda. Uh, June 20th of this year? Yeah. All right. So... Uh, and that is this coming weekend. It's going to be very hot. Yes, Friday. Right. Yeah, it's that thing where you go home and you—it's that that absurd thing where you walk in and it's hotter in the house than it is outside. It's like yesterday was pretty warm. Now that I'm outside and I'm like, well, it's pretty hot. I can't wait to be. 
And then he walks, like walking into a Vidal Sassoon hairdryer set on high. So the the trick to this is to start the air conditioner early. If you know that it's going to be 100 degrees on Friday, give your house a fighting chance and start it today. See, that's my thing. Is uh, And then I feel bad for Max who's sitting at home kind of going, well, it sure, sure is hot in here, owner. Bastard, you know, and it's like, you know, but the, so it, I, uh, I got to try to figure out, I got to like set it on a timer or something. So it's a little cool by the time I get home. Uh, and then can I just say this too? We have a real tricky circuit breaker in our house. It's a little sketchy. And if you, we have an air conditioning system in the bedroom and then we have another one in the rest of the house. And sometimes you can run them both at once, but sometimes you can't depending on how hot it is. Cause I'm like everybody in the city is trying to do it and it blows the circuit or whatever. Uh, so, and Lara gets up real early. So she has to go to bed early and it's hot. So I turn on the air conditioner in the bedroom, and then I have to turn it on in the house so you know, so she can go to sleep. So I have to do that thing of, like, just suffering in the living room for the rest of the night. And she's already in bed, like, like at 830, just sleeping away, and it's, like, 72 degrees in there. Meanwhile, I'm sitting out in the living room, you know, trying to watch television, just, and just so keenly aware of your own perspiration. And then you just start to horrify yourself. And then you think, I ought to go take a shower. God damn, I'm filthy. But then you realize... You can't shower that early in the evening because you're not going to come out and dry off and just sweat all over again. So you got no choice but just, just to stick it out and just to sit there and just be filthy for the rest of the night and then shower right before bed. Just a whole, uh, it's a whole thing. Here's Tim Riley. Well, things are so bad in Detroit that a house is selling for a dollar. In a neighborhood that nobody wants, a boarded-up house has sold for an entire dollar. We should buy it and put our new studio there. A dollar gets you a large sofa at McDonald's, a used uh, VHS movie. At a 7-Eleven or a house in Detroit. It shows how depressed the real estate market has become in America's poorest big city. And it took 19 days to find a buyer even for a dollar. Well, there's a bit of, I don't even understand how that works. Is that like a gag sale? No, it's a house on sale for a dollar. You can't sell that for a dollar. Well, it says the nicest house on the block in Detroit went for 65000 I thought you couldn't sell things for a dollar because of the, the government considered it a tax dodge. Oh, this house isn't in very good shape anyway. Scrappers tore out the copper plumbing, the furnace, the lamp fixtures, taking everything of value, including the kitchen sink. Oh, well, so maybe it really only is. Because the whole thing about you must sell something for a reasonable market. Because you have the whole thing about, you know, people will try to get out of taxes. Like, I'm going to sell you the business for a dollar. And then the government comes in and just, and the government gives you a good raping uh, because they consider that you're trying to scam them. So, but I suppose it sounds like the house, that maybe is not an undervaluing of that property. So it's put on the market in January for $1,100. It had no lookers other than squatters who sometimes stayed the night. Facing $4,000 in back taxes and a large unpaid water bill, the bank that owned the property lowered the price to a dollar. Okay. Have you thought about buying property in Detroit? It does seem like a buyer's market, Tim. A dyer's market, more like it. <laughs> da 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 Let's do uh, one more, then we'll take a break. We'll come back with uh, your phone calls and more on the Rick Emerson program. Multiple choice. Would you like to hear about a penis or Britney? Or Britney or a penis? Seems like there's a joke to be made there somewhere. Sarah? I'll let Sarah choose. There we go. Here's your Britney watch. Your Britney watch for Wednesday. What? I have two here. Okay. Yay. The new promo spot for the MTV Video Musical Awards features Britney and the show's host, British comedian Russell Brand. No idea. Hilarious. He's in Forgetting Sarah Marshall. He's hmm. this whole gimmick. I wish like it was Brit Richard Quest. 
Oh, oh, he's the guy who plays the... Okay, I know who that is, yeah. Uh, so, uh, in one spot, Bran jokes with Spears about her uh, not knowing his name. And she calls the forgetting Sarah Marshall star, uh, Russell Brown. You remember that name because I think pretty soon it's going to be your surname. Brittany Bran, he jokes. In the second spot, uh, Bran reveals an, a meeting uh, an American celebrity. You are Britney Spears, right? I'm not dreaming this, am I? He asks the enormous elephant that's standing on its hind legs nearby. No, this is real, Spears tells Bran before giving him a playful pinch to make sure he's awake. Whatever. Let's go back to that thing about you not being high earlier. Who? Just raise your hand. Maybe this worked better on television. Sarah? I don't understand. I don't understand anything you just said. She asked if it was Brittany, yes. and she laughed, and... That's what it says here. In the second spot, Bran reveals in meeting a famous American celebrity. You are Britney Spears, right? I'm not dreaming this, am I? Bran asks, as the enormous elephants stand on his hind legs nearby. No, this is real, Spears tells Bran, before giving him a playful pinch to make sure he's awake. I'm reading this as it's written. Wait, where's the elephant? You've become some sort of journalistic Salvador Dali over there. I don't... I'm reading as it is written. Okay. Can you read it? Wait. Yeah, read it again. Read it over and over. Well, let me read it again <sighs> at the very top. A new promo spot for the MTV Video Musical Awards features Britney Spears and the show's host, British comedian Russell Brand, as I understood up to this point. Spears and Brand reference the singer's 2007 VMA performance via an elephant in the room, which the duo makes no reference to. There's an elephant in the room. Oh, I see. The Pachador performs tricks in the background as Spears and Brand joke about... There are less than household name status in the U.S., his anyway. You understand that part? No, this is where you're starting to lose me, but let's not pretend I care. Let's just move forward. Part two. Britney Spears says her sixth album will be out within nine months as U.S. pop star seeks to rebuild from her troubling behavior in hospital stints in the psychiatric ward. In an interview with OK Magazine released uh, today, the 26-year-old says... She's uh, written more for the new album than her previous five studio albums and describes it as having an urban feel. Well, of course, uh, A. a uh, do, you, do you understand this? Well, yeah, I mean, I'm not a child. <laughs> I just sorry. don't understand anything about that previous story. I apologize. I, There's an elephant in the room. I know. It's more of a visual story. First of all, we all know that the more an artist like Britney writes on a record, the less successful the record will be. Secondly, of course, it's, I mean, they, that's the thing. They always say it's either edgy or more urban or more street or just like their first album all over again or it's more rocking or it's more whatever. Uh, do we think that, I mean, Brittany, comeback possible? Yes? No? What do we think? Nobody cares at this point. Yes. I think it's possible. I think she's... And especially I'm watching the video now and she's, she's looking cute again. I think she's fallen just so far that I think at this point... There's a weird sort of rooting for her as like sort of a, a a little bit of a kitsch factor. And I think Brittany is at that point now where people will sort of be behind her as sort of like a kitsch, like an ironic sort of a thing. Do you know what I mean? Like a dependable old appliance. Like a toaster. Or that, yes. Uh, it, but you know what I mean? That like it's sort of a, you know, you know what it is? It's like, here's what it is. I think pulling for Brittany at this point is going to be like that free Winona shirt that people <laughs> wore when Winona Ryder was in the clink or whatever. It's going to be like, people are going to be sort of like ironically rooting for Britney, but it'll just, but that's sort of indistinguishable from the real thing, I think. So I think a lot of the sort of the kids and the hipsters are going to sort of be like pulling for Britney because it's sort of funny to do so, which is fine, you know, whatever. Uh, so, I mean, I think, look, I mean, she's the biggest, you know, the biggest brand out there. 
from that era and that kind of music. So if anybody she can do it. at this point probably one of the most famous people in the entire world. I would say yeah, so. I, I mean, so. I would imagine I mean, her. Do you think it's more famous than she is? Uh, in her age or just in general? Just in general. In terms of celebrity? I don't know. I mean, you got the old, I mean, are we talking just real people? Because I mean, they were like, Michael like, Jackson, those guys are kind of starting to fall off the radar. Madonna? You know? Madonna, Madonna, probably. The most um, famous person in the world. I would say Madonna, Britney Spears. I'm trying to think of who else is known in terms, in either their name, their brand, or their face. Who else is still, you know. Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton, probably. I mean, he almost doesn't count because he's a politician. But yeah, Bill Clinton, Madonna, Britney Spears. You're right. I can't really think of it, and I can't think of a guy. I'm trying to think, like maybe Bono. Maybe. Maybe not even no. Maybe, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't say so. There's really, there's really nobody. I mean, there's not. You know, a while. You know, a decade ago, you would have said Garth Brooks or Michael Jordan, but not now. I can't. I mean, it might. It might just be her. I mean, you're right about that. Maybe. Maybe a guy like. Um, maybe Will Smith. Maybe. Maybe. You know, I don't know. So, all right. Well, fair enough. Well, you know what? Good for you, Brittany. All right, uh, there's your Britney watch. We'll take a break. We'll come back. Mr. Skin from MrSkin.com. More from Tim Riley uh, today. Top five benefit songs you've probably forgotten all about. Peter Carlin from The Oregonian. Uh, we'll do a little favor for listener Amanda. And, um, you know, can I just say this real quickly uh, before we break? At some point, is this guy been on hold for like four hours? You know, yesterday we were so good about getting the calls. All right, if you're on hold about animation, uh, we'll get to you here in just a second. Uh, we'll get to some calls around the corner. Yeah, we try to be really good about it, and then it sort of fell off today. At some point, and I don't want to discuss it now, but we really need to get an Obama watch song. Because, I mean, the, the writing's on the wall. I mean, let's just, let's be honest. He's, he's on vacation. He's not even campaigning. He's on vacation in Hawaii. Well, that's because people are bored with the whole thing and, and wish it would be over at some point. You know? People aren't even talking about it anymore. And there's a sort of, you know, there's a kind of cool factor that comes from that. You know, where John McCain is out there still like, look at me, I'm not old and senile. And Obama's like, I'm on vacation. Uh, well, there has to be closure to this whole thing, and it'll take the form of an election. Until then, people are just bored of it. Yeah, so Obama's just like, he's like, screw it, I'm going to lay on a beach. Uh, but, it, you know, he's it, it, whether he wins or not, and I think he will, it's going to be close, but I think he'll win. Uh, it, it, clearly, he's the candidate who dominates the news, much more so than McCain. So at some point, we're going to have to come up with an Obama watch song. And I've racked my brain. i got nothing. So we'll turn it over, as we always do, to the people. Let them do our work. Uh, but at some point, we gotta we got to come up with an Obama watch song. So be thinking about that. We'll take a break. Back after this, there was your Britney watch. We return around the corner. After this on the Rick Emerson radio program. Don't go anywhere. Emerson radio program uh, coming up here in just a few minutes. Talk to uh, Mr. Skin from MrSkin.com coming up uh, later on. Oregonian TV critic Peter Carlin. Top five benefit songs about which you've probably forgotten. Let's see. Speaking of, here's an answer to something that uh, something you didn't even realize was happening. We've got this. Uh, less than a day after speculation emerged that Lenny Kravitz might be uh, trying out for the empty Velvet Revolver singer's life. Who even knew that Scott Weiland had left Velvet Revolver? Raise your hand. No one knew. Uh, Lenny Kravitz quickly shot down the rumor. He says, I know and love the Velvet Revolver guys, but there's no truth to the story about me joining the band. 
uh, blah blah blah. Uh, people who have now people who are not uh, fronting Velvet Revolver: Sebastian Bach, Lenny Kravitz, uh, Lucas Rossi. Uh, they have all said they are not fronting Velvet Revolver. Really? Right, Lucas Rossi, wow. That's a, turning back the hands of time for that guy. Uh, all right, and there you go. Hey, Richie, we have Mr. Skin here, I think. Oh. So we'll do a couple headlines, and then we'll, uh, if you want to wrangle him. Okay. Thank you so much. Thanks, uh, let's just do this. Uh, hello. Hi, you're on the Rick Emerson Radio Program. Hey, everybody, this is Benjamin. How's it going? Hello, sir. How can I help you? Hello, hello. Hey, I wanted to, uh, say to Sarah real quick, I sent you an email about the Dharma Initiative, I don't know, about an hour ago. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, I actually signed up at the website. Nerd. So they said that oh, okay. Yeah, I just wanted you to maybe uh, you can have some comments about that later on if you want to check it out. Okay, thanks. Cool. You're welcome. Um, I was calling primarily about uh, anime, you know, and, and I may be, of course, preaching to the choir on this one. But for anyone out there who may be, I don't know, on the fence, not sure about watching cartoons in general, I highly recommend anything by Hayao Miyazaki. That's the uh, the, the Howl's Floating Castle guy or whatever. Yeah, or most uh, most notably Spirited Away. Oh, uh, that's right. Yeah, Princess Mononoke. And the uh, the anime that I first saw as a child uh, that warped my fragile little mind was Nausicaa of the Valley of the Winds with all the giant insects in the jungle uh uh, taking over the taking over the world, and I mean, it's just the most bizarre, compelling, but yet like deeply meaningful stuff all at the same time. My so wife seen... doesn't. Uh, my wife doesn't like cartoons at all. You know, animated things. She's very sort of. It's like she said at one time. Like, here's my my wife is the weirdest. I don't like movies with horses. That's another thing my wife said at one point. <laughs> I don't like any movie with horses in it. I'm like, well, whatever. Uh, but she doesn't like things that are animated. Typically, she went to see uh, Howl's Moving Castle, uh, and just uh, it just took her brain apart. She she said it just blew her mind. So. And Howl's Moving Castle, also featuring the voice, I believe, of Billy Crystal. Yes, uh, yeah. I, I do believe that's true. All right, thank you, sir. Oh, uh, one more thing, if you want to hear it, or I'll, or I'll go. Uh, we probably got a bail at the moment. All right, I'll get back to you later. All right, thank you. There you go. All right. Let's all take a breath. There we go. Uh, headlines in just one second. Let's welcome to the Rick Emerson Show from MrSkin.com, the online celebrity nudity database, Mr. Skin himself. Hello, sir. Hey, Rick. How you doing? I am fantastic. How's life? What do you got? Oh, oh everything's good. The um, Woody Allen has a new movie that opens in theaters this weekend called Vicky Cristina Barcelona. And this movie is a, a great example of why you, you don't believe the hype when it comes to sex and nudity. About six to eight months ago, I know the New York Post reported and a number of other uh, sources uh, noted that Scarlett Johansson and Penelope Cruz were going to have some hot girl-girl action in this movie. And... Uh, when my skin scouts finally saw it, uh, the hot action was a kiss between the two girls that is quick and dark, so you really don't see anything. And, uh, and The trailer is very misleading. I saw the trailer for this, and the trailer for this movie, and I'm a big Woody Allen fan, the trailer made it look as though there was like full-on sexing that happened. No, ah, no, well, no and it's very disappointing. So yeah. I always say wait till the movie hits theaters. Uh, before you get too excited, and in this case, you're going to see no nudity from yeah, Scarlett yeah, yeah. Johansson and Penelope Cruz. And uh, I reported uh, uh, with you last week, Penelope Cruz does have a movie in theaters right now called Elegy, where she's naked for the 11th time. So she has Scarlett Johansson still has yet to, to be naked, but uh, you're not going to see either naked in Woody Allen's new movie opening this weekend. Now, there's a uh, fans of the TV show 24 might know a girl named Marisol Nichols who. Uh, has been on a couple seasons on the show. Well, she has a new movie called Felon, which is out on uh, DVD. It's a prison drama this week, and uh, 
She has a really nice topless scene in that. I know guys are into her from the TV show 24. It's her debut nude scene, a very exciting uh, news from Marisol Nichols. Uh, and also, do you know, uh, Rick, the TV show Prison Break? You I ever, do. Yeah, okay, well, there's a, a hot babe on the show named Robin Tunney, and season three is out on DVD this week, and uh, she does not bust out naked in Prison Break, but uh, if you went to MrSkin.com and searched Robin Tunney, Tunney, you'd see a 2006 flick called Open Window, and there's a scene where she gets in the tub completely naked. You uh, uh, see breasts and even her Shawshank rear redemption. So uh, check it out, uh, Robin Tunney. Uh, Prison Break is uh, uh, season three out on DVD. You could see her naked in Open Window. It's the best place to see Robin Tunney naked, a big star of uh, Prison Break. You may be the greatest man who's ever lived. All right. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Mr. Skin, we'll talk to you next week, brother. See you, Rick. Mr. Skin from MrSkin.com. I love him. I want to know what he looks like. I do. I mean, it's, you know, I ever so often get to Rick, you're, you're, this beneath you. You're above, and first of all, almost no, nothing is beneath me. No, it's Shawshank Redemption. That's genius. Who comes up with that? The genius to, does. You're right. And I have to say, have you seen the trailer for the new Woody Allen film? Uh, first of all, you know, I love Woody Allen. Uh, he's, he, you know, and, and you gotta give it up. You know, he's 75. He has the power to cast a bunch of hot girls, uh, to, to Mac either on each other or on, quite frequently on him in the movie. You know, if you have that power, why not use it? Uh, but he just makes exceptional films. But that trailer is very misleading because the trailer makes it look like there's a lot of full on sex between Scarlett Johansson and Penelope Cruz on camera. The, 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 the way, I don't know, maybe they, he shot footage then just for the trailer or something because it's, the trailer would have you believe that there's going to be a lot of uh, a lot of sort of very steamy action between the two of them. And I'm not a big Penelope Cruz fan, but I mean, uh, I don't know. It's uh, it, it does look very sort of erotic, but I guess it's maybe a little a little misleading. What can you do, ladies and gentlemen? At the Ministry of Truth, it's your personal savior. And now, though, from the Ministry of Truth, this is Tim Riley. Oregon's film masterpiece celebrates 30 years. And it's going to be highlighted on the Biography Channel tonight. Guess which film this is? Masterpiece, 30 Years. Oh, is this stupid One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest? No, it's Animal House. Oh, he filmed in Eugene. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, produced for less than $3 million, Animal House turned out to be one of those profitable movies ever made. It brought in $141.6 million. The U.S. Library of Congress says it's culturally significant. It is. It's been selected for preservation in the National Film Registry. It's, uh, it's just a fantastic film. One of the best, you know, and a lot of those comedies... Don't date, uh, you know, and a lot of them, and a lot of them do. A lot of those comedies they don't age very well. I mean, I, I say, uh, never mind. I'm not even going to say what I was about to say. But let me just say that uh, that Animal House, though, is still remains a great film. And anything about Animal House that rings sort of corny or cliched now is only because they created the cliches. The thing about the sort of, uh, you know, the rebellious students and the tight ass dean. I mean, that's all a cliche now. But Animal House wrote the book on that. They're the ones who really they did that. Uh, as as good as it can ever be done, and they've just been relentlessly ripped off since then. But as that there's that trailer or that promo running right now where I'm talking to that guy about the nude scene with Belushi in the ladder, and that movie is just so uh, great and dark and bleak. Only the way that the, the way that really only National Lampoon was able to do it. So uh, and filmed in Eugene, as you said. So uh, uh, I uh, I actually knew I heard from some guys who lived at one of the dorm houses where they one of the frat houses where they where they actually filmed some of those exteriors. Here's Tim Riley. Well, Oprah Winfrey continues to stand by her man, Oprah's good friend. Gail King has confirmed that Oprah will be in attendance at the Democratic National Convention in Denver for Barack Obama's acceptance speech. Now, it's unknown if Oprah will introduce him or not. Oprah first endorsed him last spring. She's appeared at several campaign rallies. Anybody see pictures of this? 
This was the moment that the Hungarian weightlifter Janis Bajaja was waiting for all his life. It ended in agony when he dislocated his right elbow in the ugliest moment yet of the Olympic weightlifting competition. He was trying to snag the 148-kilogram in his third lift of the men's 77-kilogram division when his elbow popped right out of the socket. Bam! No longer able to support the weight of the barbell, his right forearm bent backward. The 24-year-old Hungarian fell to the floor in shock, shaking, crying out in pain. The Hungarian coaching staff rushes to his side. Competition officials rush to his aid as he limped, trembling on the floor. His arm limp, twisted out of proportion. Several photos are taken, and they're all over the web today. I tried to watch the video, but it's gone. Yeah, they keep taking the video out. And I tried to post it also, and it hasn't appeared yet. So, uh... Well, I guess that's what happened. I, the best part here is the headline where it says, Weightlifter turns his elbow back to front. There you go. That's got to hurt. Uh, I knew a guy who... Did you ever know somebody who dislocated like their shoulder, their arm or whatever? No. Here's a horrifying story, and it's completely true. No. Do, you, do they have audio of the arm snapping? Can you hear it snap? I don't know, because no. I tried to watch the video, and it was gone. Yeah, it, it's been gone. If well, you'd like, well, I could... NBC owns all that stuff. If you'd like, I could just simulate the snapping sounds, Sarah. Sarah? I mean, if, if it's, you know, if it's all the same to you. I want to hear some snapping. Give me a pencil. Hold on. Give me something to write there on. You. Uh, mm. Do you have a pencil? Yes. All right. Tim? Uh, me, Hungarian weightlifter. <laughs> I was going to ask you. I want to get Olympic gold for my country. I was going to ask if you could do the, do the play-by-play. Well, here, uh, you do the snapping, Tim. You want to snap that in front of the microphone at the appropriate moment? All right, here the we Hungarian. go. All right, here we go. So we have the appropriate, just let me let me do the lead-up to it. The appropriate music playing. Uh, what is his name here? His name is... um. Uh, his name is uh, Janos Barana Ye. And here we are at the uh, Beijing Olympics. Janos Baranye, and this was his first Olympics. He's getting ready, and uh, he's really going to go for a record here. He's going to be trying to snatch 148 kilogram in his third lift in the men's 77-kilogram uh, division. All right, and he's going for the lift, and... Uh, uh, <laughs> oh, he's got to be disappointed with that. He's... Uh... His arm is actually uh, broken in half on the ground. He can't be happy about this, Bob. He must have been expecting a different outcome. Uh, yes, elbow turned front to back. Now on the floor, crying like a woman. No, he's uh, really, he's got to be very disappointed with the way this turned out today. All right, there you go. Fantastic. Here we go. From Hungary. Okay, everybody, listen carefully. Are you watching? I'm not watching. Here he goes. He's walking up to the weight. Sarah, look at this. He's been very consistent. One one. I just showed her some skills. Okay, here we go. On the back. Here we go. That's not it. That's the lift. Mm -hmm. He's lifting. He's inhaling. Getting ready to go. Oh, oh, oh no. Oh, that's terrible. Oh, no, that's terrible. Oh, he's dislocated. That's just awful. Now they come and... This is like a fake accent. That's a crikey. So, so they're blocking the view with bags of chicken feed or something. That's a crikey accent. Okay, so yeah, so there's a bunch of Olympic officials, uh, like helpers, that come out and they immediately stand and... Uh, oh, you didn't... You can't hear anything. Here we go. You can't hear anything. You just hear the announcers. Can you turn that up a little bit? Oh, no. Oh, that's terrible. Oh, no. That's terrible. 
Oh, he's dislocated. That's just awful. Is that him yelling? Yeah. And it's him screaming, too. You can hear the... All right, I gotta watch it. Can you play it one more time? I gotta uh -huh. watch it. All right, here we go. All right, here we go. Oh, wow! I will never watch that. No. No, that's terrible. Oh, he's dislocated. That's just awful. Oh, by the way, let me just absolutely tragic and and thank goodness. Let me just call it now. Let me just say this now. We all know it's gonna happen. Hey, Tom, can you take me out Hungarian weightlifter style? Oh, I kind of heard it. Oh, oh, no. Oh, that's terrible. Oh, no. That's terrible. All right, we have to isolate the sound of that guy going, oh, no, it's terrible. That's fantastic. I mean, not for him. Uh, that's great. That's wonderful. Hey, by the way, speaking of predictions, uh, can I predict something here on KCMD Portland? Please do. All right. I'm gonna, and we'll sweep the uh, the leg, the top here. Uh, we'll do some other stuff. Peter Carlin, uh, top five benefit songs about which you may have forgotten. More from Tim Riley. I'll make a little prediction. Uh, tonight, I believe, is the first new South Park I think, I don't know if they're on hiatus, I think it's a new episode tonight, uh, since the death of Isaac Hayes, of course, played chef, uh, then left the program in a dispute over their Scientology treatment, um, and then, uh, you know, they killed the character of chef, they had him set on fire and eaten by lions, and then they turned him into Darth Chef, and I think the last time we left him, he was still Darth Chef. Who wants to know my prediction for how, uh, how they deal with the death of Isaac Hayes? I do. I'm going to say this right now, if it happens, you'll think I'm a genius. I'm a genius anyway, just for thinking of this. Um, no, I'm just saying this is really, if they don't do it, they're really missing a chance. I was talking to Paddock about this last night. This is how they ought to do it. Because right now, because they're big nerds, and it works on like three different levels, because those guys are big, they're big nerds. And he left the show on sort of bad terms. You know, Isaac Hayes quit South Park under a real cloud. He was, you know, he was really pissed about the Scientology thing that they were going to do. Um, and he made a lot of public statements about how he was really, really angry with them. and was just, hated, you know, didn't want to do the show anymore. And then, of course, uh, you know, there's the Darth, the Darth Chef thing. So... Here's the way they ought to do it. Because he's still Darth Chef, and because they ended on bad terms with him, but because he's dead now, and of course, you know, one wants to, uh, you know, one doesn't want to trample on a man's grave. So maybe here's what they do. I'm calling it right now. They end it Jedi style, where one of the kids or all of the kids are with Darth Chef as he's laying on the ground, and then at the end, they take the mask off, and then there's Isaac Hayes, and he's all like, It is too late for me. But he has the deathbed redemption. Uh, where he comes to his sense and is, and is good at the end, where Darth Chef does something good at the end, saves the kids from the evil whoever's, and then at the end they take the uh, mask off, and he has a final moment of bonding with the mask off, and then he dies. There you go. It's perfect. And it, and it works with the Darth Chef thing. It works with the Star Wars thing. It works as an end to that story arc, uh, and it'll make everybody cry. So there you go. I'm just saying for me that if they don't do it that way, they really ought to. You heard it here first. Are you leaving, Tim? Oh, wait a minute here. Oh, no. Is there breaking news? Please, nobody died, right? And by breaking, I mean arms. Wait, do you need a moment? No, uh, well, we can do this. No, it, just a quick second. The uh, wife of John McCain, Cindy uh, McCain suffers a campaign-related injury. She has a minor wrist sprain. We don't know how that happened. So, uh, oh, man, right now, what I wouldn't give to have that Hungarian uh, announcer sound right now. She suffered a wrist sprain. Oh, God, that's terrible. All right. Uh, are you going to be preparing more news? Yes, I'm running to the newsroom right now. All, All right, right, kids. Tim Riley will be back later on in the hour. He's off to prepare uh, more news right now. It's 503-733-2970. Uh, what do we got? These uh, telephone calls? I believe they are. All right. Uh, Richie, can you? are we doing Peter Carlin here? Can we obtain Peter Carlin? Mr. Carlin to the Rick Emerson Show, please. 30 seconds to air, Mr. Carlin. Did you just get this out? There's no new episodes of South Park until October. Really? 
That's yeah, unfortunate. South Park is, uh, is between seasons, and they hate Isaac Hayes, and they will trample on his grave. <laughs> That's from Thomas. Is that from Thomas? Yeah. I don't know. It seems like those guys have a pretty good... You know what I mean? It's it, it, I, well, I don't know maybe you want to, maybe you're just like projecting. Maybe you want to see the good in them, but really they're just. I don't think that's true. I think when you say they're terrible people, I think I think Trey and Matt have a good streak of sentiment in them. People, but I mean, he kind of I think he's kind of screwed them. When, he when did, he but I mean, this would be a great. But see, really, honestly, if they wanted to get this, is a great way for them to get the last word, not only at him but at Scientology, because they can have the character of Chef do in fiction what we all wish he had done in real life. In other words, they can use their uh, they can use art to to create what should have happened, mm-hmm. uh, and they can have the character of Chef renounce. I forget they didn't oh, call it Scientology, Scientology, but they didn't call it that. They called it like the Super Adventure Club, but it was obviously you know thinly veiled uh, Scientology reference. But they could have the character of Chef renounce the Super Adventure Club slash Scientology and come back around and renounce his evil and whatever, and then and then it leaves a good taste in everybody's mouth. Uh, you know, and if they are kind of still pissed about it, you know, it lets them get the last word in. Uh, and I think it would be great. And I think those guys have got a pretty good sense of, you know, I, who knows? I mean, I don't know. You can never really predict what South Park's going to do. There was that thing where Brittany blew off her head and then continued to sing for the whole episode. I mean, Jesus, who could have seen that coming? That was messed up. Really? I saw that part. If you try to predict what South Park said, that is a, that is a loser's proposition is what that is. Uh, let's see here. Uh, well, I still haven't put together any sort of a, I haven't put together any sort of a sound for him. Let's see. What, I, what have I got to introduce Peter Carlin with here? Uh, uh oh, we got that. Let's see. We got, uh, what else do I have? News on the mark. No. Wait, oh, I know what to do. I know how I'll introduce him. We're going to bring on Peter Carlin in just one moment, and I will do that using, let's see, where did it go? Uh, I will introduce him with our good friend, James Brown. Let's welcome now to the Rick Emerson Show from the Oregonian, uh, now on sabbatical, but uh, TV critic Peter Carlin. Hello, sir. Hi. Hey, so what is the deal? So you're uh, you're not, uh, it says you're, this is, is going to be your last column, this is uh, earlier in the week, going to be your last column for a while, sort of. Yeah. So what is it, so you're going to be uh, writing occasionally or sporadically or when circumstances warrant? What is your deal? Uh, yeah, sporadically when circumstances warrant. And big th- deal, the big deal stuff, the, uh, the Emmys probably, uh, the political conventions, debates. Uh, you know, whatever the big uh, unavoidable events seem to be. And so you're on sabbatical because you're working on this Paul McCartney book. That's true. All right. Uh, so, uh, and wait, and, and I forget this. Now, you've told me this like a thousand times. Is there a title for the book? Yeah. Can you tell me what it is? Um, sure. Just between you and I? Yeah. Uh, I'm going to call it, at this point, I'm calling it Take It Away. Okay. Now, it, now here's, I'm not much of a uh, solo McCartney uh, buff. Is that What is that a reference to? Well, it's a song. Okay. But it's also, uh, to my mind, the whole sort of, it, it gets into uh, the whole spirit of, or the whole uh, narrative drive, man. My whole thematic jet propulsion. Mm-hmm. Are you standing next to someone wielding a lightsaber? Is it buzzing? Yeah. there's Want a little... me to make it go away? Yes. I was waiting for you to hang up just there. I swear to God, I thought <laughs> that was going to be like a little, make it go away, click. Yeah, What Happy now, Jack? What? What was that sound? From where was that coming? Um, it's this. I have this. I'm sitting here in front of my laptop, right? And mm-hmm. uh, and the the transformer thing. That it, it's. I don't know what the hell it is. It's like ever since I got like new transformers, uh, they buzz like hell in the phone. Um, so then I unplug it. And what it, is a transformer? I mean, in terms of the, your laptop. You know, the wire, the wire deal that you hook up, like that you can plug in. 
and then you plug it into the back of your laptop, and you don't have to use the battery. Oh, I see. Dig, and nice. it has that box, that little... Oh, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, my Xbox has one of those. Yeah, it transforms one thing into something else, and I don't know what, what but that's all I know. All right, then. Uh, a couple of things. Let's talk about the... And I am going to be turning on the cable again, because as you know, you know, you were horrified, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Uh, because I, now, I just like, I can't not, uh, because you got not only Mad Men... Uh, Battlestar is coming back for its final. I mean, they're finishing up the final season. Uh, and then The Shield is coming back for the final season. And then I still got to be watching Generation Kill. So it's like, I, I got all this stuff I got to start watching. Um, Mad Men. Uh, so, boys, I was talking to Tim Riley about this, about Sunday's Mad Men, which was great. But it's just that show is just. There are times on that show, good as it is, where I can't tell if the scene is really bad or really great. And. There's two scenes I'm, I'm thinking of specifically, and I'm not really spoiling anything here, but the first scene is that sequence with uh, Betty or Betsy or whatever his name is. Uh, her name is, uh, uh, is it Betty? Betty. Because he calls her Bets, so I guess it's the nickname. So Betty uh, Draper, Don's wife. Whereas that scene where she's at the stable and she's having that weird sort of overly structured, mannered uh, seduction conversation with like the the, the, the the kid, the guy. Yes. Uh, and it really, it's like it, for for a moment, it just sort of transforms into this very sort of stagey, uh, you know, sort of dialogue. It, it does sound like it's coming right out of the West End as opposed to, you know, to, to television. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's a conscious decision on that show's part, that it becomes much more formal at those moments, uh, it, because it was very, very wooden, and I, I, in my opinion, sort of distractingly so, but maybe that's just because I'm a rube and it was supposed to be that way. Well, you know, that scene didn't make... I didn't come away from that scene um, with that sense, and maybe I wasn't paying very close attention, or maybe I was grooving on other aspects. I thought that line where she, where he was telling her how desperately sad she was, and she says, no, it's just that my family's Nordic. And that was another line that jumped out, and I went, what? What are you talking about? Well, because Nordic people, I think, are just stereotypically um, taciturn and not, and not like super demonstrative. I suppose it just doesn't seem like a thing that she would say. I And this, I guess, and this is just a me thing. Uh, this goes back to one of my larger issues with that show. One of really the only few issues. I'm transposing all my words today. I have very few issues with that show, but one of them is just, I have tried really, really hard, but I have to tell you, the, the character of Don Draper's wife is so unbelievably irritating slash uninteresting to me. And I have tried... I just to, hate women. See, and I knew that you were going to say that because you're a terrible, black-hearted person. And it's really, I mean, there's a lot of female characters in the show that are very compelling, both ongoing and one-shot characters. Yeah, yeah. But she is just, I've tried very hard to see sort of the Betty Friedan side of her, where it's the sort of smothered housewife, feminine mystique, uh, repressed in the 50s, no outlet for her sexuality or whatever. And it, it, and there are some of her neighbors even are sort of drawn in a way that I find interesting. But she just comes off as such a shallow, spoiled girl. Right. Uh, that And maybe that's the way she's supposed to be, but I find it whenever she's on the screen... I said the big the big tell for me is that uh, unlike any other moment on that show, when she's on the screen, I'll like go to the kitchen to get a snack and I won't even pause it. I'll just let it keep running. Well, uh, maybe that's why you don't like get where she's coming from because you miss a lot of the scenes that she's in. Well, maybe it's entirely possible. I, I suppose. I just I find her character to be very, just very off-putting, and uh, and it's it's sort of like have you seen the movie Idiocracy? No, sir. There's a great movie called Idiocracy by Mike Judge. Not a great movie, an ambitious but flawed movie by Mike Judge. Yes. And it's about a future where there's a guy from today, for a guy from modern times or from present day, who is absolutely middle of the bell curve, perfectly average in intelligence. He's frozen, and he wakes up in the future where the entire world is populated with idiots. And everybody in the future is so dumb 
that he, an average man, is suddenly the smartest man on earth. Kind of a nifty idea for a movie. The only real flaw with idiocracy is that, you know, you spend 90 minutes in the future with an entire globe of idiots. Right. And after a while, you realize, you know what, I don't want to spend a lot of time with these people. They're so, they're so dumb and shrill, I don't want to be around them for 90 minutes. And I think that's my thing with her, is her personality traits are so off-putting, I find that I just don't even want to spend time with her. Well, you know, I, yeah, she is a very limited character and a very limited, but, you know, but that's but that in itself, to my mind, is, is, is just, you know, is clearly deliberate. And her limitations are what are driving her nuts. And she is, and she's aware of the fact, I believe, that she is going nuts. But she doesn't know she's stuck. She doesn't know what to do about it. But that isn't, to me, it's like, yeah, I can't imagine, like, of all the characters, if they all suddenly came to life, I mean, I'm sure she'd be the one I, ha I would have the least in common with and the one I would least want to hang out with. But that doesn't make me feel that she's an uninteresting character. I, what, what's interesting to me is that you can sense, when I see her on the screen, I can sense the sort of twisty depth and that something really that this is a this is a woman who's under a lot of pressure and at some point when it erupts it's going to be really, really interesting. And there's been a little moments like that, like that thing yeah. where she was out shooting a gun or whatever last season and then well, that Yeah. And that that whole, was like um, I just actually rewatched that episode last week. That was phenomenal. And that weird stilty conversation she had with that that kid. Yes. Uh, where it's like uh, you know the only person she can relate to is like an eight year old. Yeah. Uh, so there's 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 moments of it. The the other thing uh, on Sunday that was just it wasn't even bad. It was just it really was sort of a wow. Was that moment toward the end where Don Draper grabbed that woman in an intimate area? In the uh, diaper area. Yeah, in the diaper area. See, we always say swimsuit area, but I like that better. Grabbed her in the diaper area, like in the sort of lounge, sort of bathroom, you know, outside yeah. the, the restrooms of a restaurant. And he's, you know, I will ruin him. Well, that was after she had kind of, she had used, had sort of, had done this very animalistic seduction of Don as a way to kind of put him in his place. And so, which I think made him very uncomfortable, which is why later when they were talking on the phone and uh, she said, where are you? He goes, I'm at home with my children. With my children. Which was this very passive-aggressive way to kind of try to bump her back a little bit. Right. But when she was resisting his command that she get her, uh, that comedian, her husband and client to apologize for having insulted that woman, um, and she was resisting it, you know, he came at her in that very, you know, it was, it was very much a, a, a like a rape sequence. Um, and it was an, uh, it was an unsettling moment. And it was like, the most, as some people have noted, this wasn't my observation originally, but it was um, like one of the more sort of Sopranos-esque moments. Yeah. I mean, that was a very Tony Soprano move. Absolutely. And you wonder, like, holy moly, like, what did I, is this like a new wrinkle in Don Draper? Is this something we're going to be seeing more of? Like, what does this indicate? You know, the weird thing about Don Draper, the th compelling thing about him is how you just can't get a fix on him at all, at any moment. I mean, I've, it, about Don Draper, I've sat there from time to time, you know, and you'll sort of try to predict what he's going to do, given what you know of his, um, maybe what you know of his moral barometer. Yeah. And, and then and then he sort of confounds me. Because on the one hand, he seems very atavistic and very sort of, you know, that he is whatever the moment requires him to be. And he's a little bit of a Rorschach. Uh, you know, and then then there's moments like I remember during the during the JFK, uh, you know, the the, the Nixon JFK uh, election results episode, where he has that observation about you know where somebody says well JFK stole the election. He goes well it doesn't seem right, you know. And I thought well that's weird. Why would he even care? He seems so just he seems so clear eyed that the world is really just a just a collision of electrons for 85 years and then you're dead. 
uh, that is strange when he does sort of care about something mm-hmm. um, in any event. So uh, I, I, I move on just a couple other things. Oh, just, but real briefly, the, the, the office paycheck sub, sort of subplot uh, was especially interesting. I mean, it does sort of, I mean, th- th- you can feel just the threads going through that show of, of all of those sort of office dramas that, as much as they're sort of repressed and under the surface now, are much more so then. Mm-hmm. And just all of those things that were, you know, bubbling underneath the surface. I really can't wait for the sort of cultural tidal wave to come through and hit that agency. Because if you've noted, even in 1962, they're already a little bit of, of an anachronism. Yeah. Um, all right, let's see. What else do we got coming up? we got The Shield coming up. Do you know, what do you know, if anything? And I'm not asking for spoilers, but I mean, just in terms of, of, of the, the, the Shield wrapping up. I mean, I know you talked to Sean Ryan when you were in L.A., right? I have done. I don't remember if I. I mean, I was at a press conference where he was uh, speaking. I didn't speak to him personally this time. But I know that the the, the, the as somebody and I somebody this is another thing like usually I wasn't the first one to say this, but somebody said it and I'll repeat it now that the shield, if they can keep it together all the way to the end, is really going to be one of the strongest, saddest story arcs probably in recent television history. Yeah. Uh, you know the the story of Vic Mackey, and I, I I was a little I was a little thrown by the finale of last season where they find the trunk full of smoking guns or whatever, uh, you know. But I'm willing to sort of let it slide. I mean, those things do happen in 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 real in real life. Um, but I do you have any kind of just in terms of a gut sense about how this season's going to unspool? Well, what the the only thing they would say in uh, in L. A. was that Vic Mackey finally gets what he deserves. Which of course leaves everything wide open because what does Vic Mackey deserve? I mean, I, I, you know, I mean, he's such an enormously sympathetic character, and I have to confess, I'm sitting here, you know, I'd hate to see him just completely undone because I'm not sure what he deserves. I mean, and also in that, I mean, but who knows? I mean, I have to say, I'm t- enormously sympathetic toward that character because he has a whole lot of, for all his flaws, I mean, he's a seems like a fundamentally moral person, um, you know, and I've. I unspool this all the time, but to me, you know, when when the Sopranos and the Shield were running at the same time, the thing that struck me was Tony and, you know, and Vic Mackey were like opposite sides of the same coin. I mean, that Vic was 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 moral and unethical, and Tony was ethical and immoral. Right. You know, and that was to me that was, you know, a really interesting um, relationship that those guys that those characters had, and uh, you know. Um, I don't know. I, I mean, I, for some bizarre reason, I sort of hope for the best for, for for Vic Mackey. But no matter what they do, it's one of those shows where I'm just willing to sit back and, and let it ride. Because you're just in the hands of a master. I yeah, mean, you really are. It's, it's just a really brilliantly conceived and executed show. And I completely believe that when they found all those smoking guns in the back of the car, that that stuff happens in the real world. Because it does. I mean, look at the Abramoff scandal. Sure. You know, look at all the stuff that, like... Things just kind of simmer and simmer, and suddenly when they come out, they come out with explosive force. And then suddenly there's a big trove of documents showing that RGR Reynolds wanted to sell cigarettes to fetuses or something. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. You know, we're trying to get kids addicted, in, you know, in the womb. I mean, and, and or whatever, you know, the, these kinds of things happen all the time. I will tell you that the the thing that I think uh, Michael Chiklis and and you know and and those guys on the Shield, the thing that he does maybe better than any character I've seen. In, in 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 my sort of television era, anyway, he does. Vic Mackey does just the best job ever of depicting. I mean, it's the guy who, with both hands, is having to hold every single thing together, yeah. lest it just fall apart at the seams. You know what I mean? Right. He's, he's like a guy 
running at full pace carrying a jigsaw puzzle or something. And he's just doing every. He's just got to hold it as tight as he can, or else the whole thing is just going to collapse into just shards. Well, the one thing here's the thing that I never quite understood that um, uh, that I always sort of had a little problem with. The scene that didn't really play for me was that important, you know, part of the whole creation story in the beginning where he shoots the other cop in the face. Right, right. Because everything we've seen about Vic Mackey since then reveals that he can be crooked and he can cut corners and he can do some heinous things. Um, but killing guy, like just murdering people, was seemed to not be in his playbook. I think it's like a one-time deviation uh, from the thread that was necessary to sort of be the engine for the whole series. You know? you know, that's what they say, but that's the one moment where, you know, and it's weird, like the way they shot it, and they've come back to it occasionally, it doesn't even play anywhere near as realistically. Um, the film stock looks different. Right. They usually shoot on, like, high-res video or something, and it has it has a light, you know, but this just somehow has this weird look about it, and, you know, like it's... I mean, I can't quite explain it, but that was the one bit that never... Well, it rings a little different. It rings false a little bit. But the yeah. one thing that when I was talking to those guys, I talked to the guy that plays Dutch for Jake Harnes for, at length um, one night, and he was telling me, like, just, he wouldn't give me any spoilers or whatever, but he just was like, just, just you know, sit back and watch, and you'll see that that all gets drawn together mm. uh two more two more things here before we uh, have to wrap it up a uh i hear that the, the what's that new alan ball thing the vampire thing yeah oh i hear that's terrible oh yeah you know something i don't go for vampires and, and but i was willing you know and i'm willing to like you should put that on your tombstone that should be your epitaph peter carlin he didn't go for vampires yeah no i actually know what my epitaph is going to be what is it thank god that's over that's great you like that do you, you make that yourself uh yeah good for you thanks all right well done peter carlin i'm jealous all right i don't have one yeah. I am too. That's super good. You like that? Yeah, that's really good. I thought you were going to have a motion-activated tombstone. Oh, I thought about having a motion-activated one, so like when somebody would walk in front of it, it would scream like, Yeah, you kids, get off! Yeah, 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 that'd be a good yeah. one. Uh, all right, no, that's, that's genius. So, yeah, I mean... Yeah, yeah, the Alan Ball thing, you know, I don't know. He lost me. I tell you what, he's got a lot of hard work to do for me uh, since since uh, Six Feet Under sort of flew off the rails in such a heinous and right. horrible way. Right, right. But, um, I think he skirts by on the first two seasons of of, uh, of Six Feet Under and yeah. the final 15 minutes of that final episode. Man, I don't even want to go there. I, you know, by the, after after uh, David went on that crazy, got kidnapped. Right. It was like, you know what, I'm done. Well, that was the thing. That's where it became. It became Melrose Place. You know. Well, and it became just like let's find a way to punish every single character. Right. For like no apparent reason other than we've developed sympathy for them. So now let's let's let's. You know, throw it in everyone's face. And I think that's somebody learning the wrong lessons from a lot of the good television that's on now. You know, there's that Joss Whedon says that thing about, I don't give the audience what they want, I give them what they need. Well, uh, you know, and. Case, yeah, you know, what he needs is therapy and not to take it out on. I mean, that's what he needs. I mean, he's a great. He's done a lot of great stuff. I'm sure he's a great artist, but it's just like whatever he needs to work out, he needs to do it in private and and then try to, you know. Well, you know, that, that no matter how bad that series, that True Blood series on HBO is going to be, they'll keep it on uh, at least for this whole series be, season because they got that because that Twilight book series well, uh, the kids are all into. Vamp vampires are very now, Peter Carlin. Fine. One word. Plastics. Another word. Vampires. Finally, this before we before we go, I have to ask you this: Did you see uh, this Hungarian guy snap his elbow on television? No. Oh, no. You got to go watch it. It's genius. No, I won't. No, you got you. It's it's great only because you don't because you don't really hear the snapping. You hear 
these almost comically overdone, I mean, the, the accents from, I guess they're Australian or whoever, the guys who are doing it, and they don't even sound real. It sounds like a couple of guys doing a really bad, uh, like, stand-up act based on the Crocodile Hunter. Uh, so it really is worth it just to hear, like, the guy, like, his elbow is, like, snapping all yeah, the way to the I front. Yeah, I get it, I and get the, it. No, and then you hear the guys going, oh, well, he's, that's terrible. That's a... Uh, Boy, that really is bad. He can't be happy about that. I mean, it's just like the most, it's the weirdest, most Crikey. comically, yeah, exactly, like the most comically understood, instead of going like, holy God, yeah. oh, my eyes. Uh, so, I, I would just, I'm saying, at a slack moment, maybe you want to spring that on a coworker or something. Ugh. All right. I have no coworkers. I'm alone in my basement. Coworkers. My, my book. <laughs> like, <laughs> that, that'll be a thing that's quoted back in a police report about you someday. Yeah. I have no coworkers. I'm alone in my basement. The, the time of purification is at hand. All right. Oh, wait, I had one yes. last question. Or, oh, no, and you did see Brian Wilson's coming back to town. I did see he's uh, going to be playing, what is it, the Rosemont? Yeah, which is cool because they're, I just checked the tour thing. They've got, they're have got they mostly playing schnitz-size halls. Is he got a, what is it, a new record or is it just a tour? New record. All right, what is, and uh, have you any word on the new record? Um, I have, uh, it's got at least one Stone Cold Brilliant song, like Excellent. top rank Brian Wilson songs, which is saying a whole heck of a lot. Good enough for me. And, and then some other tunes, um, which I need to listen to um, in, in much closer. And when is he coming to town? The 7th of September. Right. I am, it's coming, coming up. I am all over that. All right. Uh, so next week or time in the indeterminate future, we will uh, have Speaks again? Yes, sir. All right. Peter Carlin, my friends. Thank you. There you go. Peter yeah, Carlin, I... currently on sabbatical in his basement. Fantastic. Uh, kind of sad the way he said that. Alone in my basement. I have no friends. <laughs> so these calls and we'll take a break. We'll come back with Tim Riley and the top five benefit songs you've probably forgotten about. Hi, you're on the Rick Emerson Show. Hey, I was just going to say that that Hungarian guy, that totally reminds me of the old SNL skit, the all drug and, drug and steroid Olympics. The all skit where, where Kevin Nealon is a weightlifter or whoever, and he goes, and his arms just tear off. Just uh, right at the shoulder, just bloody stumps. Right yeah. It's like he, go, he goes to lift like 40,000 pounds, and he lifts... And he, like, jerks, and his hands and his arms stay on the weight, and he just jerks, but they separate his shoulders, and blood begins to fountain out of his shoulders. Uh, yeah. It's like the well, best thing ever. Well, you feel that in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Thanks. All right. One more. Hi. You're on the Rick Emerson Show. I like Peter Carlin's idea of epitaphs. Hey. So I'd like to, I like to steal one, or uh, I thought of one. Yes. Uh, you know the, the stickers you'd see on a, bump, uh, a dumpster? Like, do not play in, on, or around? Exactly. That's what's going to be on my tombstone. Do not play in, on, or around. All right. Excellent. Good for you. All right. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Clever for mine. What's that? I haven't thought of anything clever. Me either. I mean, I, you know, just, I, I can't. I mean, all the ones I have were basically just ones I stole from other people. So, I mean, you can, they can't all be that. They can't all be Mel Blanc's tombstone, which just says, that's all, folks. Uh, let's take a break. Back after this, Tim Riley and the top five benefit songs about which you've probably forgotten entirely. Uh, stay there. Back after this. Emerson Radio Program. That's just water, by the way. I was wondering. 
Mm-hmm. All right. See you guys. Uh, Chris, Jeff, whoever, hang on. We'll get to your calls here in just a few. Uh, here's Tim Riley with today's top five. In these times of turmoil and strife, people often can turn the power of music to see their way through the darkness. Some attempts resonate the world over, and some are less transcendent. Uh, we now search... <laughs> I'm sorry. We now search the past... For these, the top five benefit songs you probably have forgotten all about. So these are the, you know, everybody remembers uh, We Are the World. Uh, everybody remembers, uh, you know, Do They Know It's Christmas. Uh, these are the top five benefit songs about which you have probably totally forgotten. With HM, or Audible mentioned the new kids on the block, this one's for the children. It is indeed. So all of you, please listen. Wow. This sounds just... I know this is heresy, but that sounded just like L.O. Cool J for a second. That clunk clunk sounded like that Whitney Houston song. Yeah, well, it sounds, I mean, this every, all the sort of hip-hop and electro-pop from this period, it all sounds the same. But this sounds, this sounds just like I Need Love by L.O. Cool J. I need love. I need love. Girl, if you're out there, show yourself. Remember, if you can't sing, drown it in reverb. Reverb is sort of the, uh... That's sort of the pitch shifting. That's the auto tuning of the 80s. I wonder where Maury Starr is right now. He's the guy that created and wrote everything for the new kids on the block. You know every word of this. You're really cool. I know. That's fine. I own it as a 45. I'm glad you remembered it. This should be the next song we cover as a show. Kennedy? Yes. No. Was he really? I don't really remember a time when Donnie Wahlberg was hot. I couldn't get past the, the pork pie hat he kept wearing. He was my, my first crush. I sold my Donnie Wahlberg doll. All right, though. Counting on the top five benefit songs you've probably forgotten all about. Number five, Do They Know It's Christmas 2. So this is, as Tim just said, Do They Know It's Christmas 2. No new words, no new music, nothing new about it, just re-recorded by another group of British pop... Well, not, I wouldn't even say stars. You know the biggest stars on this record? Bananarama. That's it. This is exactly the same song. It's the same shtick. They just tried to roll out the gimmick, you know, a couple years later. Well, remember that thing we did in 19... It wasn't even that long, wasn't it? The original one, like, 1985? Right. So, like, less... Four years later. It's like, let's do that again. Let's just get a whole bunch of other uh, people and stick them behind. The video looks exactly the same. It's like segueing from one guy, and he's doing that thing of, like, in front of the microphone, and, like, he's got one of it. He's got his hand pressing one of his headphone cups in, like, against the, like, he's feeling it in his cans, you know? Uh, here's some of the stars <clears throat> that appeared on Do They Know It's Christmas 2. Bananarama. Big Fun. Big Fun? I didn't know they were a real band. I think they came after Heather. They must have. Yeah. I mean, right? Teenage Suicide, don't do it. And uh, and Technotronic. There you go. Those are the big marquee acts on this. Do they know it's Christmas 2? I mean, you watch this video and it's mystifying. I mean, really, as, really few, as few artists as I could identify in the original uh, Do They Know It's Christmas video, I can't identify anybody in this video. Not even Bananarama, who had that one hot girl. 
Counting down the top five uh, benefit songs you've probably forgotten all about. Number four, Northern Lights. Within months, unless the world responds with a massive relief effort. So this is a... So there was USA for Africa. This is, yes, Canada for Africa. A group called Northern Lights. And they got, you know, it's Canada, so they got Brian Williams. Or Brian Williams. Brian, uh, Brian Adams. It's a law. So they got Brian Adams, and he takes up most of the time in the video, but I think he only sings like one line here. Uh, this song is called Tears Are Not Enough. Really? It's called Tears Are Not Enough, Sarah. Never heard this. It was so hard to find copies of some of these songs. I mean, it's a terrible song. It's awful. I mean, it makes We Are the World sound like Rachmaninoff. I mean, it's it's just it's unbelievably bad. I don't even know if there's a chorus here. There we go. Brian Adams. Checking in. That's the kind of music we play at Walgreens. Yeah. Where you're sitting there going, uh, I don't know. Should I pay more for name brand Q-tips? All right, I'm done with this. Uh, top five benefit songs you've probably forgotten all about. Number three, we're all in the same gang. We're all in the same gang. Now, I know Sarah definitely doesn't remember this. It, probably the only person in the building who would remember this is Fatboy. Richie might remember this. So we're all in the same gang was this sort of, it was the West Coast rap all-stars, and it was to stop gang violence, and it included Tone Loke, NWA, Young MC, and I'm not doing this from memory, I am, I am reading this, Tone Loke, NWA, Young MC, MC Hammer, and Ice-T. It goes on for seven and a half minutes, it's tedious, uninteresting, uninspiring, and just serves to embarrass everyone involved in it. And it was one of those things where, like in a de and it was right when rap was sort of ascendant and in a desperate bid to look like they were hip, the New York Times called it one of the year's most compelling rap records. So there you go. It is nothing com compelling about it. It's terrible. All right. really it's awful. It's a, ter it's a terrible song. And I mean, we're all in the same gang. Really? Is that like, is that the best lyric somebody could come up with for this? Yeah, the era of socially conscious rap was not without its duds. All right. Uh, counting on the top five benefit songs you've probably forgotten all about. Number two, Hear and Aid. Hear and Aid. Hear and Aid? Hear and Aid. Um, Sarah doesn't know about this, but probably should. See if you can spot who's singing on this. The song is called... The song is called Stars. The group, you know, the, the organization, the, 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 the musicians as a whole were called Hear and Aid. I do believe it was a benefit for hearing loss. Wow, that's loud enough for anyone to hear. Yeah. Because they're rocking. So are they trying to get rid of deafness? <laughs> they're trying to cause... Trying to eliminate the last pesky strains of hearing ability. It's a little bit of a trick question because there's like a hundred different singers on this. So are they for or against it? They're trying to raise money to stop deafness or to hear deafness or... Anything? Oh, is it you? Yeah, he's the one who led it. Ronnie James Dio, Don Dockin, Kevin DeBrow from Quiet Riot, Rob Halford from Judas Priest, Jeff Tate from Queensryche. Wait for it. You watch this video and it looks like a parody because it's all of these like, you know, just these 80s like hard rock schmoes 
doing the We Are the World thing. Like, they're all in the studio around the microphone, but they're all, like, with the tight leather pants, you know, like, you know, and the cod piece, and just like, you know, into the microphone. It's just ridiculous. Did they have the lady in the corner for the visually impaired doing the hand signal? <laughs> you really owe it to yourself to watch this at some point, by the way. Yeah. All right, ladies and gentlemen, Ken, in the top five uh, benefit songs you probably forgot all about. Number one, Hands Across America. I don't even remember what this is a benefit for, by the way. But the gimmick of Hands Across America, which is 1987, I think, was that they wanted to get an unbroken chain of people from L.A. to, like, New York oh, I remember that. holding hands. So that would be, however, like 2,500 miles or something? Yeah. Yeah. Only a couple states participated, so it's really broken up. They're in, they're and they and then of course it's interspersed with children going, I'm so poor and hungry. I mean who's gonna hand hold hands across Death Valley? <laughs> so there you go. Tim Riley, ladies and gentlemen, greatest newsman in the history of the world. So yeah, the goal was to have an unbroken chain of people holding hands across the entire country and this was the song that accompanied it. And they ended up having like fifty people do it. All right. Let's see if we can get the Waiting for them to say hands across America. Here we go. It's four seconds away. Back after this. We now enter the saddest part of the broadcasting day, the final segment of the Rick Emerson Show. Uh, final call of the day. Hello, sir. Hi, you're on the Rick Emerson radio program. I'd like to change the subject of my call, if that's okay. Go ahead, sir. Well, I'd like to tell you the reason why I haven't slept for a month. Okay. Because of you, it is, I'm a classy off-letting bagel. I'm a classy off-letting bagel. I'm a classy off-letting bagel. I try all the time to mute the commercials on the TV so I get those jingles out of my head. But now at night, I'm singing in my head, I'm a classy off-letting bagel. <laughs> and I can't sleep. I can't get sleep. <laughs> this is it's the... all because of you. I mute the commercials. The... <laughs> 1-800-CALL-ME-ME-ME-ME-ME. Credit this, credit that. And you've got what And you've got what stuck in your head, sir? I'm a classy operating bagel. Thank you. I'm glad the Rick Emerson Show could help you in that way. It's what we do. There you go. There's that guy. Uh, we don't have time to wrap it up here. Like us next. Michael Maris Show at 7. Join us tomorrow uh, at 10 for the recap, 11 uh, for the show. As always, thank you for listening. Be safe. Don't let the bastards grind you down. Watch out for snakes, and we'll see you all tomorrow. Bye now. I'm a classy girl.